Hey everybody, Angela Bowen here, the host of Looking Back on My Wonder Years, a Wonder Years podcast. How's everyone doing today? Well, today I have another bonus episode, a movie review of one of my favorite movies from the mid-90s. <laughs> the mid-90s, excuse me. The War, which came out in 1994, starring Kevin Costner and Elijah Wood. And I, in the 90s, was a big Elijah Wood fan, especially when I got to be a teenager. So I have IMDb up. I'm going to read the synopsis. Vietnam War vet Stephen Simmons must deal with a war of a different sort between his son and their friends and a rival group of children. He also must deal with his own personal and employment problems that have resulted from his Vietnam experiences. This movie has a 6.7 out of 10 rating on IMDb based on 11,438 ratings. This movie also stars Mayor Winningham as Lois Simmons, Lexi Randall as Lydia Simmons. So Mayor Winningham plays Kevin Costner's wife and Elijah Wood's mother and also Lexi Randall's mother. Lydia plays the daughter of Kevin Costner and Mayor Winningham and the older sister of Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood plays Stu Simmons, Kevin Costner plays Stephen Simmons, Mayor Winningham plays Lois Stevens, and Lexi Randall plays Lydia Joanne Simmons. Alvadine is played by LaToya Chrisholm. We have a bunch of the Lip Nicky kids, which one of them did go on to become um, quite a little actor. And that boy is Lucas Black. If you guys remember the movie Sling Blade with Billy Bob Thornton, Dwight Yoakam, the late John Ritter, that is an amazing movie. Lucas Black in this movie plays Eb. It just says Eb. We have Eula Livnicki, played by Jennifer Tyler, which looks like she really was not in anything else. Other than something called the, it's just called Score that came out in 2001. She played Flashing Girl, uh, right? Um, Amber, she played um, one of Lydia's friends. And looks like this was the only movie she did. Charlotte Julius. Let's see. Where is... Here she is. LaToya Christen played Elvadine. This movie was the only movie she did. Donald Sellers plays Arliss Lipnicki. This was the only movie he was in. Same goes for Leon Stills, who plays Leo Lipnicki. We have Will West as Lester Luckett. Didn't do anything else. Brennan Gallagher plays March. He was in The Message and in 2012. Adam Henderson played Chet. The War was the only movie he did. Uh, let's see. Justin Lucas plays Willard. This is the only movie. Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of um, The guy who plays Raynor Shine... He was in Ace Ventura, he was in My Cousin Vinny, The Quick and the Dead, The Rookie. This guy was in a lot of stuff. 
And he just... Yeah. Oh, he was also in Transamerica, which I've seen that movie. It's alright. Um, but this guy was in a lot of stuff. Is he still currently with us, though? Let's, I think he might be. Yes, he is still with us currently. Okay, good, good, good. Christine Baranski plays Miss Stratford, who is a racist teacher. Um... It's summertime, the 70s, Juliet, Juliet, Mississippi is where this movie is set. Lydia's stuck in summer school because she hit this boy with a rock, and then he went to the teacher or principal or whoever and said that Lydia had been cheating off of all his papers. She gets stuck in summer school. Yikes. This movie was directed by John Avnet, A-V-N-E-T. I want to see what else he's done. Wow. So he's directed 25 things. Let's see if some... Um, Call to Glory, a TV series, he directed two episodes. Fried Green Tomatoes, which it does say on here, Fried Green Tomatoes came out in 91, The War came out in 94. On the DVD, it says, from the director of Fried Green Tomatoes. Let's see. After the war, he directed Up Close and Personal, which had Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer. He directed Red Corner, 97, which had Richard Gere. Something called Uprising, a TV movie. Boomtown, a TV show from 2002 to 2003. He directed nine episodes. Conviction, TV movie. 60 Minute Man, TV movie. 88 Minutes, starring... Al Pacino, The Starter Wife. He directed five episodes of that. Let's see, Bunker Hill, Pleading Guilty. Just a lot of TV series and TV movies. A show called Justified on FX. He directed ten episodes. Sneaky Pete. He directed five episodes. All right. Let's see here. Get out of this. Uh, writer, Kathy. Let's see if I can... Um, Looks like she's really only done this. Kathy McWhorter. Okay. All right. Well, we got awards. PFS Award, Political Film Society, 1995. It won. Nominee, Best Performance by a Young Actress, co-starring in a motion picture. Lexi Randall was nominated. Elijah Wood, Best Performance by a Young Actor in a Drama Film. All right, so they both were nominated, but neither of them won. Well, all right, I want to go through the trivia. The cigarettes Elvadine smokes in the movie are herbal, not tobacco. Well, of course, because she's a kid. Film debut of Lucas Black. Okay, so later on he would be in Sling Blade. Gotcha. Walter Crowley home, 12-14-63, is carved on the back of the chair on the front porch of the house that Stu, played by Elijah Wood, and his dad, Stephen, go and visit. Now, even though his name is Stuart, most of the family, friends, everyone calls him Stu. A couple of times his mom or dad will call him Stuart. The film debut of Brennan Gallagher, who played Marsh in the film. This movie, I gotta say, has got one of the best soundtracks out there. It is extremely, utterly amazing. Who'll Stop the Rain by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Daydream, The Love and Spoonful. Poke Salad Annie 
Tony Joe White. Love is like an itching in my heart. The Supremes. Soul of Sadness, Tracy Nelson. Think by Aretha Franklin. Summertime, Porgy and Bess. Janis Joplin. Summertime Blues, Eddie Cochran. Spirit in the Sky, Norman Greenbaum. Follow, Richie Havens. Peace Train, Cat Stevens. Gimme Shelter, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Rolling Stones. Up on Crip Cripple Creek, The Band. Someday we'll be together. The Supremes. Baby Love. The Supreme. A lot of Supremes music in this. Sunshine of Your Love. Eric Clapton. Alright, let's get some taglines here. There's only one. What's worth fighting for? And there's a question mark. Okay, uh, there are some goofs. Uh, acronym here. When Stephen is telling Stu about his hospitalization, he says that the doctors diagnosed him with post-traumatic stress, so basically PTSD. That term didn't come about until post-traumatic stress syndrome, which included in the DSML or DSM-3 nearly 10 years after the movie is set. So then if this movie's set in the 70s, then it means they didn't have that term until the 80s. The lip nickies dry off too quickly after exiting Lake at the Quarry. Well, it's summertime, hotter than Hades and Mississippi. They're going to dry off fast. I mean, seriously, how many times did I wet down my hair in the bathroom, only by the time I got back to my workstation, would it be mainly dry? Yeah. When the family is eating their burnt breakfast, the close-up of the father's plate shows everything except the eggs totally burnt and black. And the next shot, not only is his toast... Only slightly burnt, but the position of the food on his plate has changed, too. Well, yes, continuity, yes. Amber's hands after she jumps from the tree with a rope. What about them? They change? Who cares? When Moe and Steven are draining the water from the mine, Moe lifts the valve up to the pipe twice. Good for him. Who cares? All right, I'm going to waste no time. Let's jump right into this movie. Oh, the composer of this movie is Thomas Newman. So we open the movie, right away you get this beautiful score. And I'm going to play it real quick because this is just, it's haunting, it hits you in the feels. The movie has not even started yet, and already it's tugging at your heartstrings with this music. The first shot we get is of this giant tree that just stretches out its limbs in every direction. It's huge. This tree is going to come into play a lot in this movie. It could be, you know, even the, the symbolism and what it means and everything like that.
just, I mean, and this theme, this score, plays throughout the movie in just the right spots that it needs to. To get you, like like I said, right, this movie, this movie, guys, is all about the feels. You are going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to smile. You're going to pump your arm, pump your fist in triumph. It's just, you're, yeah, you, it, it, it gives you everything. So, the camera, I like how it circles around the tree, like, 360, you know, see the branches and everything. And you see 12-year-old Elijah Wood. In this movie, he's got a flat top. He's got a shaved head, which is understandable. Honestly, 95% of these boys in this movie, except for two of them, buzz cuts. Which makes sense. It's summer. It's hot out. You don't want all that hair. Right away, the score slips out as Here Comes the Rain slips right in underneath it. Stu's older sister, Lydia, who is, I'm guessing Stu is maybe 10. Lydia's 12, I imagine. She sees her brother in the tree. He's just kind of doing some soul searching. He's just, you know thinking about stuff, contemplating life. She's like, hey, he's back. We don't know who he is, but we're gonna... This movie, just like the movie Now and Then, is going to be narrated. As in, somebody's telling us a story, or they're telling a story to somebody else. Music by Thomas Newman. This man, Magic Fingers. Just magic, magic, magic all the way around. I believe he also did the Mar Marley and Me soundtrack as well, which that was really good, too. I want to see what else that Thomas Newman has done. Also, real quick, this movie actually was released November 4th, 1994. So it was just like a, a week, a couple weeks outside of just before Thanksgiving. So it's kind of cool that they released a summer movie in the fall. Which, I thought they did that with Home Alone, didn't they? Did they release that around this time, or did they do that during the summer? I thought there was Christmas Vacation, I thought, might have been released during the summer. I'm not sure. So this guy has done a lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff. From Revenge of the Nerds, The Lost Boys, The Great Outdoors. These are just some of them, because he has such a long resume. Fried Green Tomatoes, yep. He near the the movie Threesome. He did that movie. Oh my gosh, guys! I'm gonna tell you that movie Threesome is only good for one thing, and that is masturbation. So yeah. Uh, he also <laughs> uh the Shawshank Redemption in '94, along with the War in '94, Little Women, Up Close and Personal, Phenomenon. This guy's done so much stuff. The Horse Whisperer, Meet Joe Black, American Beauty. That haunting tune, which I think in the trailer, somebody did say that music in the war, he used a little bit of that for the trailer, but the Green Mile, that is both that and American Beauty both came out in the same year. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, Pay It Forward, Finding Nemo, really? Oh my gosh, a Disney film. Wally, Revolutionary Road. Little Children, so two Kate Winslet films. The Help, such a good movie, such a good soundtrack. Amazingly beautiful. Let's see. 
spec is a spectra the james bond film finding dory victor and Ab abdul abdul I can't say. Um, I have that movie. I still haven't unwrapped it from the shrink wrap, and they came out two years ago. Um, Tolkien, and something that's coming called uh, 1917, which is supposed to come out on Christmas Day of this year. All right. I didn't. Sorry, guys. I only tried to give the gist of some of the, the good ones that I, or notable ones there. Um, let's get back into the movie now. We see this truck tearing up this dirt road between these two cornfields this is a man-made road between two cornfields it's uh basically it looks like just a one-lane road but then again if you stretch it out far enough there is enough space to have two vehicles going down it so as the song cuts out the score slips right back in we get a shot here of the dust that was riled up from the uh, Lydia's truck. So I'm going to play this little clip as Lydia starts to narrate, My name's Lydia Simmons and I'm 12 years old and these here are my memoirs. Now Lexi Randall in this movie, before she was in this movie, she was in two other movies prior to this um, that were on the Hallmark Channel. They were based on a book series called Sarah Plain and Tall. There's also the sequel Skylark. In 1999, she would reprise her role as as Anna Whitting. Okay. I will eventually cover the Sarah Plain and Tall series on this podcast at a later date. Maybe next year, maybe the year after. Just really depends. So I'm gonna play this clip, which kind of explains the story and <clears throat> the family dynamic and everything, especially when it comes to their dad. Steven Simmons, who's played by Kevin Costner. <laughs> my name's Lydia Simmons, and I'm 12 years old. And these here are my memoirs. <laughs> I can't really tell you much about me nor my life, but that first to tell you about my brother Stu. Our spring, Stu had been kind of quiet. <laughs> Perhaps it was because a couple months earlier our father got out looking for work and never returned. It wasn't the first time Dad went away. Ever since he'd come back from Vietnam, things hadn't been just right. <laughs> Mom held two jobs just to make ends meet, and we were still dirt poor like everybody else in Juliet, Mississippi. But this June morning in 1970 was different. Flowers were in bloom, and along with the color and the sweet smell of summer, our father had come home. So just even with that little bit of information she gives us, she's 12 years old, they live in Mississippi, their dad is an ex-veteran from Vietnam, he left to find work, he's been gone for two months, Stu really hasn't said a whole lot about it, their mom holds down two jobs to hold down, you know, a roof over their head. But they're still dirt poor, as Lydia refers to them, as anyone else in the small town of Juliet, Mississippi. So it's like, even though you got two jobs and you barely got two nickels to rub together, you're still going to be dirt poor, but you're still going to have a roof over your head, at least for the time being. And she does state that 
her father. This is not the first time that he has up and left and dis you know disappeared, tried to find work. And she does say that ever since their dad got back from Vietnam, he just he's not the same person that he was, which that is probably the case. A lot of guys that go off to work, they're not going to come back. You know, and be the same person they were before they left. They've seen too much. They, they've heard too much. They've had to do things they probably wouldn't normally do in everyday life. And that changes a person from what they see and what they're forced to do. The time period is going to be June of 1970. And it says Joliet, or Juliet, one of them. It says unincorporated, which I don't know what that means. Does that mean non-segregated or what? I mean, this is 1970. This is in the 60s. But then again, sadly, in the small community, things really aren't that different than... And I'm guessing it's got to be this... It could be the teacher and how she does things. It could be maybe the town, how they do things. I don't know. So they find their dad at their old house. It has a sign that says, Condemned, do not occupy, not fit for human habitation, by order of Kendall Company, Housing Author Authority, Juliet, Mississippi. So, yeah, Lydia stops by where their old house stood. The only thing left standing is that chimney that was connected to the outside of the house. And she parks and she just kind of watches her dad there who's just, you know, knelt down and just kind of looking, you know, at, at the rubble and everything. And Lydia just kind of voicing, you know, her opinion to Stu, saying how her dad looks lonely, more lonelier than anyone she's ever seen. And she also goes on to say that this isn't her voiceover, this is just her just voicing her opinion to Stu. She says, Mom says that war destroyed all our lives. Well, it definitely did, because he's not the same person he was when he left. And apparently, his PTSD, his problems from, you know, as he's trying to cope with being back home in society and trying to leave the war behind, he is having difficulty finding work. He's losing jobs. Which is terrible, you know. He clearly was most likely drafted into this war. He didn't say that he wanted to go, and now he's suffering the consequences of what he witnessed and what he had to do. It's affecting, you know, his life with his family, his trying to inter reintroduce himself into society and everything. And one thing that... Sh her mother does say is if it weren't for that damn war, we'd still have this house. Now, Stu kind of chimes in with, the house had termites. That's why the county condemned it. Like, yes, Stu, if you want to tell yourself that, I'm sure it did have termites. But more than likely, if your dad was unable to hold a job, you guys couldn't make payments on the house, the county was going to take the house. So I'm looking at, um... Elijah Woods, you know, where he was born. He was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But in this movie, of course, the kids all put on, you know, southern accents. I've seen other movies with Elijah Wood. The only other thing I could think that he would even have a semi-southern accent in is 
Adventures of Huck Finn, which is a Disney movie. I'm going to cover it sometime on the podcast. But, um, yeah. So, after he says, you know, the house had termites, that's why the uh, county condemned it. They kind of end their conversation there, which is like, hey, I'll see you later. Bye. As Stu gets out of the truck, he just looks at his sister and laughs like, hey, don't get arrested. Because she's 12 and she's driving a car. I'm pretty sure in 1970, the driving age was not 12 years old. I know nowadays, if kids that are like at least 14 and they work on a farm, you can get some type of a permit that does allow you to drive within the confines of the farm that you're on. That pretty much gives you permission. My my cousins that were younger than me when they were like 12, 14 were already driving. Granted, yes, I definitely felt jealous of that. Especially because my cousin and I, even though we're like five months apart in age, we took driver's training at the same time and he was doing a lot better than I was. So now we go back to Lydia's voiceover as she says, As I watched my brother walk to my dad, I knew he would start talking to him as if no time had passed at all. And that's just how Stu and his dad are. It's like they don't need to talk about, you know, why you went away, why you're now back, what's going on with you. No, they just casually start talking like, hey, dad, how's it going? The house, huh? Remember all the fun memories we had in the house? It's like, oh, yeah, yep, I sure do. And, and that's pretty much it. It's like, they don't need to talk about the tough issues. And I like this about Lydia. She says, no one in my family ever seemed to say hello. And she says, I guess that was our way of never having to say goodbye. Oh, yeah. Just start talking. Now we're getting a flashback to this bulldozer that is just, it just like, tips of that house and boom that house comes down it's like yeah that house had termites like to the max oh there goes the uh well wait a minute if that part of the fireplace falls down and just breaks apart then why is it still standing in the, the present day yeah, as it's crumbling, the bricks are all falling. So why is it still standing? That's a continuity error right there. Wait, was that in the continuity? I bet it was. Yeah, this house, when it falls over, it falls over like a house of cards. Like, kapoof! You could have blown... You didn't even know need the bulldozer. You could have blew on that house and would have fall over. fell over. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking at this bit of rubble here. This this chimney, this is standing tall and proud. There's, what is that? It looks like a gas tank. Why would there be a gas tank where this rubble is? That doesn't make any sense at all. Was it in the house? I don't get it. You know, I'm moving on from this. I'll just chalk that up to one of the greatest mysteries in the in the movie world, I guess. So now we move on from the house of rubble. We move to the Simmons house, which looks like, you know how they call it, what, like that term, like clapboard house? Kind of, sort of. They're, all the houses are similar, so I'm guessing if this might be some form of government housing for low-income families. Um, we see it's right by the train tracks. When I lived in my apartment, the train tracks were, like, right next to it. And every morning, right around, like, 10 a.m., the train would go by and wake me up. 
if I wasn't already awake. Usually, I, I mean, that's my... Usually, I'd probably sleep past... Even now, I mean, I think I sleep past ten. So, we got... Of course, we got to have a crotchety old neighbor like, Same ends, your house is on fire again. Like, lady... It's not on fire. They're just cooking. Go inside and crochet something. Watch your stories. Go away. Okay, now we're inside the Simmons home. Go to the stovetop. Those sausages are burnt. They are literally on fire. As Lydia... No, Lydia. Um, what is her mother's name? I gotta find out. Lois, Lois, Lois goes over to the stove like, oh, no, 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 no. What were you doing? Was your back turned for just a minute? You probably had the burner on too high. Or it's just an old stove that goes out of whack from time to time. I don't know. She also works as a waitress. So I'm guessing she's probably just taking orders and, like, not cooking. But then again, I mean, yeah. We got on the radio, Daydream by the Lovin' Spoonful. So, actually, to put the fire out, did she put, like, some, uh, cornstarch or baking soda, right? That puts out fires. Oh, she puts a cookie sheet over it and just starts to blow on it. Uh, I guess, if that helps. No, burn down that place. So, Stu goes over, like, hey, are you alright? And she's like, oh, don't worry, I'm fine. I thought he's like, gonna go down and, like, turn the burner. Well, she actually moved it to another burner, so just waiting for the smoke to clear. Those things are charred. So, this is a typical morning in the Simmons house. So, we're just gonna see how the family represents itself as a whole when they all sit down to breakfast. So, Stu, of course, whether this is routine for him... He grabs a box of cereal, and his mother, who's at the sink, is like, Stu, don't you dare. We're having these charred sausages. You don't need that cereal. So she just tells him to wake his dad up. So Stu goes into his parents' bedroom. We get a shot of uh, Steven. He's shirtless. He looks like... Is that a war scar? He's got, like, this, like... Scar that starts just under his pectoral area, goes straight down, and then curves right towards the belly button area. So I'm guessing that's a war scar. That's not a I got my appendix out scar or anything like that. Do they have a fan going in this room? Because he is like practically glowing, drenched with sweat. Now, as Stu goes to wake his dad up, we do hear helicopter so uh, chopper sounds. So, I'm guessing this is just to symbolize that Steven is, you know, having a dream about, you know, his, his time in Vietnam. Maybe he's having a flashback, like, in his sleep. He's not moaning, he's not tossing and turning, but Stu does, like, like, shaking his dad, like, hey, dad, dad, you awake, you awake? I don't know, is that the best way, to, maybe this is the first time he's waking up, well his dad like just got home, he was away for two months, and he's kind of shaking him, and I don't know, is that the best way you want to wake someone up who's been in the war, they could be triggered by that. And Steven just grabs him and grabs Stu and pulls him down, not in a, 
I got you. I'm gonna, you know, tickle you, son. No more of a, I'm grabbing you by your shirt and then swinging you around like I'm going to choke you to death. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even Sue's like, Dad, Dad, what are you doing? And Stu finally gets, he gets up like, jeez, Dad, are you alright? Oh my gosh. You almost choked me out. And and Stephen comes out of it like, yeah, yeah, I'm alright. Just give me a minute. I'll be out there. So we hear the announcer of the radio. He says, get ready for a brutal three days of sun. Hazy, hot, and humid. Ugh. Well, it is Mississippi. I'm checking out the fridge as Stephen's walking into the kitchen. There's one... Uh, either newspaper clipping, magazine clipping, I don't know. It says monster. I don't know what that's supposed to be. There's something that says gossip and it's got like some pictures. But there's what looks like maybe a school paper. Like pinned up over the top of that. But that definitely does look like gossip. I don't know what that other thing's. Maybe it's a recipe that's on top of that school paper. It says by afternoon on Tuesday expect temperatures to break 100 degrees. Good golly, Miss Molly, get out of that, get out of that house, go do something, go to the movies, go to the movies. Oh, shoot, you know what? 1970, do movies have air conditioning? I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm going to look that up. I'm kind of curious. Okay, here we go. All right. When were movie theaters first air conditioned? From 1917 to 1930, movie theaters were the next focus of the industry, giving the average person their first taste of air conditioning. The first known theater to use refrigeration was the new Empire Theater in Montgomery, Alabama in 1970. 1917, excuse me. Wow, okay. Oh, here we go. The history of movie theaters and air conditioning. Before air conditioning became common, only one type of building was air conditioned. The movie theater. In the 1920s, people flocked to watch films. There you go. Movie theater, air conditioning, boom. You want to cool off, you go to the movies. Am I right? Humidity at 90%. This is all the announcer. Oh my, oh my god. 100 degrees and 90% humidity? That's like death outside. I'm hitting up that movie theater. I don't know about you. We'll see Gone with the Wind like a hundred times. Because we know it's like over three hours long. Every single day, we're going to go see Gone with the Wind. So, alright, let's look at Steven's plate. We got burnt toast. Like, literally black to the black toast. The eggs do not look blackened. They look like a crispy golden brown. We got the sausage, the round sausage that is also kind of burnt to a crisp. So Steven's at the table with the kids and he's like, ah, eggs and everything. Look how nicely it all goes together. So he's just making conversation. Of course, you know, Lois has got her waitress outfit on. She's probably scrambling to get breakfast in the morning for the family. Have a smidge of family time before she goes off to work. Because she works two jobs. So she probably doesn't really see the kids that much. And she kind of asks, like, oh, y'all don't think it's too well, do oh, well done? Like, as in, is it too burnt? And Stephen's like, oh, no. Not at all, right, kids? Wink, wink. Like, back me up here, please. Oh, Lydia. <laughs> well, I guess if that's your if that, if that's your prerogative, girl. She's like, I just pretend like I'm a starving Indian. And this is my last piece of food. 
That's the one thing standing between me and death. Like, okay. And even Stu looks at her like, uh, you're weird. You're my sister. Okay. She makes it the story about this is my last piece of sausage and I got into a fight over it with another starving Indian. Native American, excuse me, I'm sorry. And it tumbled into the fire. And this is all that's left between me and death. And both Stu and her dad look at her like, Wow. Cray cray much, right? <laughs> so I love how Steve is with, Stephen is with his kids. Like, oh, I'm not starving Indian as he holds out his fork. And takes the sausage from her. And she's like, Give it back, dad. Give it back. So Stephen says, Stu, can you do us the honor of saying grace? And he prays, like, dear Lord, bless this food. And he's like, please. And, and the family just laughs. Like, <laughs> I like that. The whole family just laughs. It's so cute. It's sweet. It's comfortable. It's familiar. Yeah. Now we're at what looks like a diner. Oh, what is this? The University of Mississippi. It's a football schedule. 1960 whatever old Miss schedule. What's that say? Memphis Crate? What does that say? Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia, something Mississippi, Houston, LSU, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, Miss State, so maybe Mississippi State. And then one thing looks like it says, like, open. I don't know what that is. That's a like a big yellow schedule just posted right in the door there. Where now, if you want to schedule for like football or whatever, they make them pocket size now, or you could even find them on the internet, which didn't exist in 1970. Just the outside of this donuts place is it called donuts? They could use some updating. Fresh coat of paint. The donut sign looks faded. Those little curtains in that window, burn them. Burn them, burn them, burn them and get some nice bright flowery white, white, uh, maybe some light blue color. Just dress it up a little. And the green on the outside, paint it blue. Paint it, paint it red. Paint it red. Bright, bright, bright colors. You'll get people flocking by the droves. I don't know anything about advertising, but if I'm going into a shop, I want the outside of the shop to draw me in by the colors. Bright, bright colors. Not mustard yellow colors. So Stu is just kind of sitting at, is this a table or is this the, I think it's the counter at the front. He's just checking out the newspaper. We got a what is that? Um, the menu says Coke. Brighten every bite with Coke. Because we want to have some Coke with our lunch. With our eggs and sausage and hash browns. We want to have Coke. Oh, he's got a donut there with sprinkles on it. So some raggedy, dirty looking boy in a shredded off-white tank top. It probably was white at some point. Goes up behind Stu shoves him with both his hands in the back like hey asshole and Stu's like excuse me but he is already like he's ready to throw down like you piece of shit be dress oh Stu goes for it and just clocks that kid right in the face like thank you 
You don't come up behind someone, push them and say, hey, asshole, and not think that you're not going to get punched in the face. Because you are. So Steven right away goes in there and breaks that up. And this kid, we learn his name is Lester Luckett. He is just gross looking. He has got a tank top that is three sizes too big as the sleeve or the um, shoulder strap of it is like halfway down his arm. So yeah, Steven's trying to break it up like son. He's putting his arm out like son, you stay there. You don't touch this boy again. And he's keeping one hand on Lester and he looks at Steven even looks at him like are you okay son? And the kid just kind of nods. Like, what else are you going to say to an adult? Call them an asshole? I don't think so. So, of course, Stephen lets Lester go. And he says, hey, tell your sister I'll be gunning for her. As in, I'm going to be keeping a watch out for your sister. And I'm going to beat her ass. So, Lester walks off and Steve's like, yeah, I'll tell my sister you were gunning for her in a donut shop, you moron. And you hear Lester as Stephen is dragging Stu out of there. You hear Lester say, you'll see Simmons going to kick your ass too. Oh, really? Because it looked like you were on the bottom of that fight, kid. So Stephen's like, Stuart, what was that about? I turned my back for a second and you're in the middle of a fight. What in the world? Granted, he doesn't know his kid's day-to-day goings. You know, he's been gone for two months. It's summertime. The kids are out. They're getting into trouble. They're having fights with other people. I can't believe that kid got a donut. It's like, kid, you started a fight. I don't ever want to see you in my donut shop again. And he just gives this creepy look at Stuart, who's getting... Getting talked to by his dad, like, hey, you're in trouble now. So Steve's like, who is that boy? And Stuart says his name's Lester Luckett. What a... Ugh, I don't like that name. And Stu reveals that that boy is the reason that Lydia got stuck in summer school. So basically, Lydia hit him in the tooth with a rock, and then Lester went and told the principal she'd been cheating off all his papers. Are you kidding me? Really? What kind of school do they go to? A crap school? Granted, it's 1970, and a principal's probably going to believe a boy over a girl any day of the week. But, I think that's garbage. Like, here, let me look at your papers. Let me, oh, you know what? Lester, you have terrible handwriting, and your grades are terrible. Lydia, this really isn't so bad. Oh, my gosh. How can you say she was cheating? So Stephen is just like, really? She hit him in the tooth with a rock? And she was like, yeah, well, he's always calling her names. And last year, she vowed to knock every tooth in his head out. So, <laughs> poor Stephen. He's got his thumb and index finger kind of mas- massaging um, between his eyes. Like, ugh, looks like I'm going to have to talk to that girl. And Stephen's proud of his sister. Like, yeah, she's got a pretty good start. Like, yeah, she'll, she'll throw down with the best of them, basically. So, Stephen's like, is she doing anything else I should know about? And Stu's like, well, yeah, I mean, she's doing a lot of things. I don't really think you should know about them. Yeah, she's smoking. I don't know if she drinks. I don't think she's fooling around with boys at the age of 12, so you don't got to worry about anything like that. But, yeah, she's not doing anything else. So, and you kind of get the picture that Stephen really does not know his kids that well, as far as... 
he doesn't know what they do on a daily basis. He doesn't know the trouble that they're getting into during the summertime. It's like, great, I have my own troubles. Now I gotta deal with this. I don't need this right now. Because he's trying to find work. So he finally sits Stu down and says, you know, I came to talk to you. I didn't want to have to referee a boxing match, which is what I was doing. So right outside that donut shop, it says Juliet Volunteer Fire Department. So this donut shop is right next to this volunteer fire department. So he says, I've been meaning to tell you something that I've been putting off. And you know how all the time I've been out looking for work. So he says... Honestly, I haven't been entirely accurate with my story. The truth of the matter is I've actually been in a hospital for the last couple of months. Not your typical, I broke my leg, I need to go to the hospital. It's the type of hospital that helps you with your mind. So basically, a psychiatric hospital. And because of that, that stuff's got to probably go on an application. It's got to go on a resume. And you know... Back in the 70s, probably that is going to be a hindrance when it comes to you finding work. They find out that you're in a hospital. Why? What's wrong with you? Now, I don't believe that a possible employer nowadays would be able to look at that and say, I'm not hiring you because you were in a state psychiatric facility. They, I don't, I think that's against the law. You can't dismiss someone just because of that, right? I don't think so. So, Stu's like, well, why were you in the hospital? And Stephen says, well, because it has to deal with my time in the war. I went a little nuts for a while. So, whatever he's dealing with in the war that's coming back, and that's affecting him, like, most likely probably PTSD. And it's, it's affecting his everyday life. He can't focus. He just feels so far away from his family and everything like that. And this hospital is supposed to help him learn how to cope and how to handle things. And he even says them doctors called it post-traumatic stress. They don't call it PTS. They don't call it disorder. They don't call it PT post-traumatic stress syndrome. They just call it post-traumatic stress. Granted, in the trivia, they said that this stuff was not 100% defined until like the 80s so there wasn't a proper term for it just yet but i imagine that probably a lot of people that went off to war that weren't all there or weren't you know 100 percent fit to be in society or not they probably all struggled with trying to find work i like what steven's doing here he's trying to explain what's going on with him like remember when i used to do things that like wouldn't make any sense it's because of those dreams. He calls them dreams that he's been having and stuff. So definitely it's not just affecting his waking hours, but it's affecting, you know, his sleep as well, which isn't good. So Steven says there's a lot of pain in my head, and he tells Stu something else. Like, I'll tell you one thing. Those three jobs I landed after the war, lost all of them because of the dreams I've been having. Because they found out I was in a state hospital. I can't believe that. He's not a murderer. My gall. And he even said it wasn't because I couldn't do the work. And I like how Stu, we flash to Stu, and Stu is just listening very intently. He's like soaking all of this in. And he, Stephen lets 
you know, still know, like, they're finding out a lot of men who go off to war don't come back the same. Like, if it's not going to be, you know, physical problems, like either they're missing a limb or or what have you, it's going to be a lot of it has to do with their mind. A lot of it is every day they're still there. They're still fighting that war. And they're finding it very hard to be able to reintroduce themselves into society. Even if, you know, taking it day by day and step by step, it's still a major adjustment. So, of course, you know, Stephen kind of closes this conversation, but not me, you know. I'm getting, definitely getting better. It's like, good, good, that's great. So, he's like, alright, come on, let's finish our, finish our coffee and donuts. Coffee. Stu's drinking milk or soda. Or, why am I, I always call it pop. For whatever reason, I keep switching off to saying soda. Like, eh, I don't know. So, as they're walking back into the donut cafe. Oh, there's a post office right across the street from them. Um, Stu's like, oh, you must have drunk one of those dreams this morning. It's like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, by the way that you grabbed me and held me down like you are going to choke me out, I wouldn't be surprised if you did have one of those dreams. Still kind of asked what it was about, and Steven brings up his friend. He had a friend in the Marines. His name was Dodge, which, so he's like, Dodge, right? And then he's like, oh, well, Mom told me, don't get upset with her. I mean, she didn't mean anything by it. She's just telling me. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's all right, that's all right. So we do get a flashback from the war here of... Steven and Dodge, he mentions that he and Dodge have been friends all the way up through through boot camp and how he's kind of protecting, Steven was, you know, protecting Dodge and everything, like, just stay behind me, I will take care of you, just, oops, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, Steven just kind of goes on to tell, I guess they were kind of ambushed or something and he's opening fire, they're all opening fire, he's trying to keep an eye on Dodge. And whether he might lose him as, as far as he can't find him. Just with all the chaos, everything's going on. You're shooting, they're fighting. And of course the story gets interrupted by Stu's friend who is like rubbing his nose against the glass. And just like, hey Stu, get out here. Let's go. We got, you know, days of wasting. We got stuff to do. Oh. Stu wants his dad to continue with the story, and you just hear this kid outside going, Hey, Stu, let's go. Come on, Stu. We got stuff to do, Stu. So Stephen's like, you know what? Um, how about I finish the story another time? You go off with your friend. I'm sure you guys got stuff to do, so. So also on the radio, we hear an Alka-Seltzer, old Alka-Seltzer commercial. This kid's putting his lips on that glass. That's nasty. These kids, I'm thinking, like with the Lib Nickies and then Chet and um, what's his name, Marsh or something like that. They all must be like regular kids from like around where they they filmed and stuff like that because they all sound like they got nat like natural accents. And even Lucas Black and other things, you can tell that accent is a hundred percent real. He's not putting on an accent. He that is a true accent. So yeah, he's like, well, you go on, hang out with your friends. I gotta find me a job. I got the classifieds here. Alright, so now we're kind of split in time between what Lydia's doing with her friends and then what also Sue is doing with her own friends, which eventually these two stories are going to collide and it's going to be one group of kids all hanging out, working on the same project. 
Lydia, who we go to first, of course, is on the Lipnicki's property, which is, they run a junkyard, I'm guessing. And we heard this voice off screen saying, Lydia Simmons, get your skinny ass off the Lipnicki's property now. Like, what are you doing? You're going to get caught. He's going to shoot you. So, yeah, they're raiding the junkyard for a bunch of stuff. What? She found, like, an old, like, withered bare bones box ring. Which, don't know what they're gonna do with that, but... So, we have Lydia's two friends. We don't learn their names just yet. But she's like, what if that old man Lib Nikki crawls out from under that junk pile and eats us? Like, uh, I have the subtitles on. It makes it a lot easier. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. So, of course, there's a gunshot and the girls run away screaming. It's like, you know, yeah, I need to get your asses out of there. <laughs> that is not a playground. It's a junkyard. I see a lot of rusted out stuff. Girls, you could get tetanus. You get cut, you're getting tetanus. You're getting lockjaw. Yeah. Oh, I love Lydia's uh, red cowboy boots. She's wearing a typical Hanes black tee. She's wearing cut off what looks like overalls. And it's just like, oh my gosh. So we see one kid here who's got his hands over his ears. I don't think he is into the gunshots and a dog barking nearby. So we see the old man, uh, Lip Nicky here. He's got a gun in one hand, he's got a rat in the other, so... Ugh. And now we cut over to Stu with his friends, and he is over by the rock quarry, and he's just seeing all this junk garbage. Like, oh, we're gonna build a humongous tree fort. And he's like, Merry Christmas, ladies. And I'm guessing, yeah, this, this kid's name is Marsley. I don't think you get it, Simmons. We don't give a dead rat about building your dorky fort. I'm like, then why are you hanging out with him? He wants to build a fort. You're either going to help him or you're going to complain. Or you're going to help him and complain. So, of course, while the boys are at this quarry, we do see the water tower, which will definitely come into play later on. We hear someone hollering. They're like, what the hell? And they see the Lipnickies are, like, riding bikes into this quarry of water and swinging from a chain into the water. So, first up, we see one of the older Lipnickies, Leo Lipnicky. He's riding a bike and just goes right off that quarry into this large body of water. Like, oh my god. These guys are like acrobats. They are like they're they're like evil Knievel dun devils, stun devils, or whatever you what are daredevils? Yes. So of course we got Arliss who goes and leaps off the quarry holding that chain. What is connected? It's a rope that's connected to like a big long crane. And then we got the boys watching this, and Marsh is like, are they nuts, or are they nuts? Of course, the rest of the Lip Nicky kids are all like, hey, you trying to talk about my family? And it's like, oh, uh, no, hi, uh, what's her name, Eula or something? She got this giant stick, like, she's gonna just end those kids, like, uh, crap. Could've, should've kept it. Should've just gotten out of there, guys. If that's where the Lipnickies hang out, you're, like, walking into their area. 
which I don't think those kids own that quarry. Don't tell me they do. Dad don't even own that junkyard, I'm sure. He just lives there. Bang! We got, uh... We got Eula, we got uh, Lucas Black, who plays Eb, and whoever this other kid is, who's in a lime green. Sure, the, the kids clearly... They're really, they got dirt smudges on their clothes, on their faces. They just look like their clothes and themselves have seen better days. So like, oh, hi, Eula, how you doing? And she's like, don't talk to me, don't look at me neither. And then she yells out to her older brothers, hey, we got some trespassers up here. Like, oh boy, this ain't good. Guys, you should have, you should have gotten out of there, like, ASAP. Now you're in for it. Heaven forbid if these were actual adults that stumbled onto this place. Are you going to beat them up too? So, Stu and his friends tried to, uh, they tried to get out of there. Like, no, you ain't going nowhere, guys. Sorry. I'll, I mean, it's basically three against three here. The three lip Nicky kids against Stu and his two friends. Like, you're not going anywhere. You're screwed. Oh, the boy in the green shirt's name is Willard. Oh, uh, the lip Nicky's Leo and Arliss kind of got... This kid here, I guess his name is Marsh, as I keep calling him. He's got, uh, is it Arliss who's got him in a headlock? And Leo says, oh, we have to come up with a rhyme, or no, the Marsh has to come up with a rhyme, like a slur to his friends. And if it doesn't rhyme, he's got to come up with a, he's going to be first to eat, what, a a dog turd? A dirt clod? I don't know. And they're referring to them as trespasser. Like, so our uh, list is like, hey, anyone got a rhyme? And Eula's like, here I sit, eating a pastry strudel. And of course our list is like, alright, trespasser, think of a rhyme to pastry strudel. Like, oh boy, here we go. Better get creative there, Marsh. So basically, Marsh is like, here I sit, eating my strudel. Chet plays with Barbies and Stew eats doggy doodle. Like, oh, oh, well, boy. So, yeah, clearly his Marsha's brother's name is Chet. <laughs> but even still, say, ugh, well, that ain't terrible. Sucks that you had to be forced to do that, but. Of course, Stu, you're just making it worse. He's like, hey, why don't you pick on someone your own size? So they look at Eb, who's right around the same height as Stu, and says, all right. Ab, go take care of him. And Stu is like, really like, hey, what's the matter? You guys afraid of a fair fight one-on-one? -on because -one? really, it's just Stu and two friends. And then we got like five other kids too, which look like they're clearly in high school. Both boys look like they could probably be, the older two, Arliss and Leo, look like they should be on like a wrestling team or something. Because they are like... Beefy and buff. Not beefy out to the, like, not like a brick wall beefy where they could be like a, a quarter, a, a linebacker or something on a football team. But no, they look like average. They could be like wrestlers. So, Arliss calls over Eb, and we hear, is it Stu that says, Eb what? So, March is all, while he's being held in a headlock, basically, it's like, Stu, don't get yourself killed, basically, which... If you had kept your dang mouth shut, you probably wouldn't be getting your ass kicked right now. So, Eb, like, really, like, lowers his head. Like, he's gonna goat ram Stu right in the gut and knocks him to the ground. Eb, Eb, 
fights dirty. He kicks Stu right in the stomach. And Marsh is like, hey, stay put, cry uncle, just stay down. I'd be like, get in a fetal position. Because that kid already kicked you in the stomach. And Eula's like, hey, kick him again. And Eb kicks Stu right in the dang mouth. Like, Stu's lucky he ain't missing some teeth. Luckily, there is a security guard, or, well, not a security guard, but someone who probably works the ground. He's like, hey, you kids, what's going on? And, of course, Arliss is like, oh, nothing, he just uh, fell. And the guy's like, you need to get your asses out of here before I call the cops. This is private property. You are not allowed to be here. So, the Libnickies take off, but not before Arliss warns Marsh. The quarry's ours. You best not come back unless you want to leave here in an ambulance or a body bag. So, the Libnickies leave. You hear poor Stu just groaning in pain in the background. Chet helps him up because, well, I mean, Stu's been kicked in the stomach and the damn face. So, I wouldn't be, probably wouldn't want to be trying to get up on my own either. Of course, Grant and Marsh gets, uh, pretty tough when he's like, you know, one of us ought to go back there and kick some ass. Well, you weren't doing much of that shit when they had you in a headlock, guy. so just let it alone and just get the fuck out of there. So this is where we get the uh, first mention of these fireworks that are gonna partially come into play. They'll get, you'll hear about them later. Marsh says, my brother's got more fireworks than Ho Chi Minh. And he also says to Sue, like, hey, we could hold up in that fort you want to build. He says those mongrels wouldn't be able to touch us. Of course, Eb turns and grins at Stu, like, I'm gonna get you again. I kicked your ass, kid. Alright, now we got the song Love is Like a Itching in My Heart by the Supremes as we cut back to Lydia and her two friends. So now we got the girls kind of hanging out. Um, Lydia's hanging out, smoking a ciggy. We got, uh, we'll learn their names, Elvadine and, let me find out the other girl's name. Because they don't say it yet. Okay, so it's Elvadine and Amber are Lydia's friends. So yeah, it's like they're kind of complaining about, you know, how hot it is so early in the morning. Let's go hang out at the tree. We have all this stuff. Lee wants to kind of like, let's just get there. Opening's like, look, I risked my ass for you. Give me a five minute break at least. Or a puff off your cigarette. And of course Lydia's like, no, hey, I got this on my own. You get your own. I love what Elvadine calls the Libnicky. She just refers to them as the crazy, gap-toothed, banjo-picking, no-eyelid, hillbilly yard stealing all their junk. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That's just funny. Oh. <laughs> so Lydia's like, look, you don't have anything to worry about. You were not even on their property. That was all me. Okay, so definitely, you know... Lydia is white, and her friends are, you know, they're African-American, or, you know, black, or whatever you want to say. Um, <clears throat> Lydia uses the N-word. I definitely will not repeat that. She says, quit, you know, 
whipping my smoke, basically. And Elva Dink gets P-fucking-O'd with that. So, excuse me? What the hell did you just say to me? And Lydia's like, well, wait a minute. No, you call your friends that. And Lydia's like, that what I call my kid, my, you know, whatever, that is my business. But you do not call me that, basically, flat out, like... Well, what'd you call your friends? I like that doesn't matter. You don't call her that. So that's definitely the girls are uh, at a crossroads here. They're like, well, that's it. Friendship's over. Give me my mood ring, Lydia. And Lydia's like, okay, but what about my puka shell necklace? Of course, Elvedine's like, I will see that you get it. This is not good. And um, Lydia's like, she's she's fucking sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. But, you know, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Elvedine's like, I, my mom says I don't have to hang out with anyone that degrades me that way. And, of course, Lydia is really, she's giving the puppy dog eyes, like, please, I'm sorry, please, I really, I don't want to lose my friend. And, of course, Elvedine's like, all right, all right, look. I get it, you're sorry. I'm going to let it go this time, but, but. You are on probation. And do not think I'm going to forget about this either. So yeah, Albany's like, she's going to make Lydia work to get that friendship back. Oh, and, and Lydia, and the, yeah, she's going to get that friendship back twofold. Definitely. We'll get to that. So they got a wagon that's got a lot of, a pogo stick, what, something that looks like some really rotten shingles and some boards and some maybe chicken wire fence. I can't tell. I don't know what that is. A toolbox? Is that a shovel? I don't know. I, I'm trying to make out what's there. and It's basically just a lot of shit. But it's their treasures, so they're going to take it back to their fort. Their tree. They haven't built the fort yet. It's under construction. Work in progress, basically. They're going through a cornfield. Oh, my goodness gracious sake. Yikes. I heard somebody say once that if you're running through a cornfield that's really, you know, tall and everything, that the, st not the stalks, but the leaves are so sharp they would, like, cut your arms off or something. I don't know if that's 100% true. I don't even know if it's, like, 1% true, but... Take that with a grain of salt, I guess. Alright, boys and girls, they show up at the tree and they're like, what the fuck? This is my tree, my spot, what are you doing here? The, the boys and the girls each have like a, a wagon full of, sh of stuff. And of course, Stu gets like, oh damn it, you gotta be kidding me, really? They both snagged this tree as this is the spot I'm going to be making this tree house. Come on, guys, your siblings. They're gonna race for it. Like, all right, whoever gets to the tree gets to have the the that the tree for the tree house. They're gonna race to another tree. That tree is big enough for all six of you, Stu. Come on now, your siblings. They hit that tree at the same time. Like, Lydia's like, all right, guess we're gonna have to share it. Like, oh damn. Well, you know what? Come on, guys. It'll be a lot better, you guys, working together, and just, it's going to go a lot faster. Or not, because clearly they're going to have, everyone's going to have different ideas about how they want to do things, and what stuff they want to use, and how they want to build it. 
Compromise, guys. Compromise. Okay, now they're gonna come home crying to daddy and mommy. Like, hey, us girls got there first, we raced for it, and we tied. Of course, Stu, as they're arguing, they're going into the house saying, I said we'd try it, and we tried it. They tried what? What did they try? Clearly, there's six of them. Everyone's gonna be like, no, it's ours! No, it's ours! Boys against girls! Ay, ay, ay. So, now we're in the kitchen, and we have Stu and Lydia sitting at the table. They're about as far away from each other as they can get. So, Steven suggests, like, hey, give it one more day. Stu immediately, like, Dad, come on, I don't want to do that. And he's like, ah, all right. If you can't do that, I guess then you are gonna have to put a little daylight between yourselves. As in... The boys can work on the fort when the girls are in school. When the girls are in school, you guys basically go, you fuck off, and you go do something else for a bit. And you know, what he's asking of them is not unreasonable at all. Like, you guys clearly can't work together right now, so you're just gonna have to divide your time. And, of course... Steven found out about Stu fighting. He's like, I do not want to hear about you raising your fists again. And he's like, do you got that? And of course, Stu's like, yeah. And then Steven turns to Lydia and Elvity and like, do you all understand that? And they're like, yes. Alright then. Oh, of course, Lydia is gonna schmooze her dad. Like, Saying, hey, can I do something, you know, play with your hair or whatever later, like give you a makeover or what, something like that. <laughs> he's smooth, like, he's like, oh, thank you, daddy, thank you. It worked out in my favor. Oh, she wants to give him a French twist with dip dippity-doo as like a hair product. As a kid, I didn't know what a dippity-doo was, but what's a French twist? So that's basically like, I think she'll have like... His bangs, kind of like in little um, hair curlers to kind of do a little funky what have you with his hair. And you just see Stu the whole time. Oh, gosh, she's getting to him again. Dang it. <laughs> so, of course, the kid's mother calls Lydia in like, hey, I need help with the laundry. Could you button here? On the radio, we got up on Crickle, Crickle, Cripple Creek is playing. Elvity's still sitting at that kitchen table. She lights a cigarette, and you just see Steven's face like, what in the world a 12-year-old kid is smoking in my kitchen? Granted, he just does, is just like, oh, okay, okay. He sits down like, oh, Elvadine, how you doing, girly? Like, uh, my life's been a wreck. How about you? And he's like, going basically <laughs> I love how even though he will be stern with the kids on as far as you know dis discipline and you know giving them a talking to he's he's chill he's laid back man he doesn't say hey put out that cigarette in my house you're too young doesn't say any of that of course Lydia's like hey Elvadine Amber come on and help me with the laundry like eh, okay we're here. Like, while you're here, it's like basically, it makes yourself useful. Help me out here. 
So the other girls excuse themselves from the kitchen table. So now it's just Stephen and Stu. And they're going to kind of rehash a little bit about what happened with the fight. Like, hey, I see your lips bleeding. What's up with that? I heard you got into a fight. How'd it happen? But before, I like this, what he says to Stu. He says, I'm proud of you for sharing that fort with your sister. And he, Stephen even says, so you treat her good. She'll be in your corner the rest of your life. Like, yes, definitely. Those kids are going to have to lean on each other a lot and take care of their mom. And I don't want to, not trying to spoil anything, but yeah, yeah. You know, that's how you do with siblings, you know. You, you take care of one another when you when you need each other. Because one day, if you think about it, it's just going to be you and your siblings, your parents aren't going to be there forever, and you got to have each other to lean on. That's the one thing about Nicole and I. Now that my dad has been gone, it just seems like Nicole and I are, you know, we're talking. We're getting a little close, you know, closer and stuff, because it's just the two of us now. I mean, she has her children and stuff, but even still, it's like, we are the only two left of our initial family. So he's like, hey, something happened to your lip? And of course, Stu is like, got kicked in the face. And of course, Stu's like, yeah, I got kicked in the face by the lip Nickies. And of course, they do a little play on words with the, the this name here. Like, oh, we should call them the lip kickies. And Stu's like, more like the lip dickus. So Stephen's like, you you feuding with them too? You know, not just your sister. No, you're feuding with them. And Stu is pissed. He's like, yeah, I hold my temper. Sometimes I just want to wring their scrawny little fucking neck. Well, he doesn't say fucking, but still. And he's, he pounds on the table. He's pissed. It's like, I get it. You want to hold your temper? You end up getting kicked in the damn face and kicked in the fucking stomach and shit? How long are you supposed to just hold your temper and turn the other cheek? And heck, he's lucky he ain't spitting up blood and teeth. I love what Steven says here. He says, boy, sometimes all it takes is a split second to do something you'll regret the whole rest of your life. Truth, Steven, truth, yes. That's the thing, that, that, that temper, you know, people, sometimes they get a temper, they react out of anger and everything, and it's like, yeah, in that split second that you make a decision to do something without fully thinking of the consequences, you could later come to regret that decision. So, yeah, he, he basically says, sometimes, Stuart, sometimes it's too much. And then, yeah, he, temper flares up. You just got to learn how to, you know, handle it. Tamp, tamp that down. Um, basically, uh, this leads into Stephen telling Stu that, you know, he got a job. And Stu, I like they just, you know, immediately just flow into this next topic of conversation like let's move away from this on a happier note got me a job today working for the state boom making the bucks of course uh yeah steven's working for uh as a janitor at uh stew's old grammar school He's the new custodial engineer, and what sucks about this is, guys, you know that he's lost jobs before, because of, you know, what he's going through with the PTS, PTSD. I'm calling it PTSD. But out there, yeah, he's going to lose this job, too. Which sucks, because it's a job through the state and everything. It's like, what the fuck? Of course, I love, uh... 
Steven's at the, um, the sink, kind of drying some dishes or whatever. He's like, hey, too, <laughs> Stu's like, too bad I graduated. We could hang out. Like, I don't think they're going to want you. If he's cleaning that school, they don't want no kid hanging around while he's supposed to be working. Sorry, but even still. Oh, he's probably talking about, like, uh, like in the fall. Like, if I had still been there, like, you and I, we could hang out and all that fun stuff. And here's a term we get on occasion. Boss. I heard it in Stand By Me. Like, I heard it in an episode of The Wonder Years. That term boss is probably, like, another term for, like, hey, that's cool, that's awesome, that's great. So now it looks like it's nighttime. We got Steven working on it. Looks like a radio, whether it's just trying to tinker around with it or fix it. He's got the batteries there. He's got his hair, you know, his bangs kind of up and, you know, curlers and barrettes and stuff. Lydia's kind of doing a makeover on his hair. Oh, she's got a lot of barrettes, like, pinning his bangs back and everything. So it's almost like Lydia's playing beauty parlor here with her dad. Like, hey, can you come on in here for, for a minute? And he's like, honey, I'm, I'm working on the radio. Are you sure? Just Can, can this, like, wait a moment? And she's like, no, 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 you promise. Sit down, sit down. He's got that old little uh, canister or of set, you know, the, the dippity do. Of course, he sits down. She starts baking and break up, uh, taking off the... Uh, the barrettes and everything. Like, oh, what are you gonna do to it, honey? <laughs> like, I'm a little nervous. What are you gonna do to my hair? Of course, you're not. I'm just, I'm just taking it out, taking out the barrettes. Oh, she says she's just taking it up, which I'm not sure what that is, but okay. She's a beauty parlor lady, so. <laughs> and in the background, those horses. Horses. Those houses are so close together, you can hear a baby in the next house crying. But not only is she, you know, working on his hair, she's going to give him a bit of love advice about, you know, mom and, you know, mom's, uh, been looking, uh, you know, a little, a little sad lately. I think you need to, you know, cheer her up or, you know, put, you know, ask her to dance, put your arms around her, hold her. Show her that you still love her, basically. Okay, so she basically starts out this conversation by asking, how come you and Mom don't talk anymore? And Stephen's reason for that is just, I've been gone a long time, Lydia. Like, I, well, yeah, I get that he's been gone a long time, but... Oh, he says we're just giving each other a little space right now. And Lydia's like, well, you better stop crowding her, Dad. Put your arms around the woman every once in a while. <laughs> and her recently, or she's gonna think you don't like her no more. I, ah, oh, I love her relationship. I love his relationship with both his kids. And she says, now I'm giving you this advice because I see that you just don't know what you're doing. And he does tell her, like, well, I am going to take that to heart, thank you. So now we cut to, it looks like Lois is getting some, I'm guessing wood for... Maybe, well, it's summer, so they're not really going to need heat, but they might need something, whether that could even be, like, for the stove to cook on to generate, you know, heat. I, I don't know, but, or, because they're in Mississippi. Do they get, I don't know. I don't think they get snow there in the winter, but then again, I have no idea. I don't know. So, of course, Stephen does take Lydia's advice, and he comes up behind Lois and puts his hands on her arms, like, oh, and she, and she's surprised, but, I mean, 
you know, she's probably happy because her husband, you know, hasn't hasn't touched her in a long time. He's never been, you know, this close, this affectionate in a long time because he's been gone. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, separation and, and time between them. And it's, he's dealing with, you know, these lasting effects from the war and everything probably has made him, you know, emotionally distant. Oh, I love that. He's like, Lydia suggested that I dance with you. Oh, this is so sweet. And Stephen asks, well, that is if you're interested in still taking my hand. And she still, you know, not looking at him just yet, but she says, I've been waiting on you to ask for the longest time. So she turns around to face him and says, you even got your hair done up for the occasion. And uh, he's like, oh, no, no, this is, this isn't, this is Lydia. This is all Lydia's doing here. <laughs> so, of course, Lydia comes out of her room and sees her parents dancing in the kitchen. And she comments how this is the first time she's, well, not the first time she's seen, well, yes, the first time she's seen her parents, well, her mother crying of happiness. But then she's like, well, then again, maybe it's just dead stepping on her toe. It's like, no, she's crying from happiness. Now we cut to a shot that says for sale, for, for sale, Polet Realty Company. There's a phone number, 227-8661. Whether that number goes to anything, I don't know. Okay, so this is where we do get a shot of a house that looks in major disrepair. That will definitely come into play later on. Because uh, Stephen actually just stopped right across the railroad tracks. Or whatever it is. And he's just kind of gazing at it. Thinking, you know, that's the goal of mine. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get a house for his family. He doesn't want to stay in that government-issued crap shack or whatever you want to call it. You know, and, and there's nothing wrong. You know, he wants more for his kids. He wants... Them to be able to, you know, have a future and his wife not to have to work two jobs and everything. He wants to have a job that he can keep that won't be taken from him because of, you know, his PTSD problems. Oh, I shouldn't call them problems and PTSD. So the kids are doing pretty alright with their working at um, the tree, the fort. They got a base for it so far as they have... Four sides, you know, with lumber, like a, they're trying to build a foundation, something that they can, um, build from the bottom up, so. Granted, remember how Steven told them, like, when the girls are out of school, you guys need to basically fuck off and go do something else. Stu knows, excuse me, excuse me, Stu's friends do not know this. They weren't there. They weren't privy to that conversation. But everyone else was. So there is going to be an argument. Of course. Okay, chunky monkey boy. You're fat shaming somebody when you yourself are a little uh, husky. Come on now. No fat shaming. I know it was 1994. But seriously. Yeah, fat girls, is it absolutely necessary that you serenade us? It's like, dude, you want me to knock your block off? <laughs> so Amber mentioned something. Well, because he called her fat girl, uh, uh, Marsh did. She says, I'm on a diet, I hope you know, because I have a granular condition. Of course, Marsh looks to Chet and 
they both laugh saying, more like a hostess condition. Like, shut up. If the Goonies were out, people would be calling you Chunk. You stupid kid. So, Stu comes down, Marsh is complaining, like, hey, these girls are giving me a heart attack, let's 86 them. So what does 86 mean? Like, ditch somebody? Like, or tell them to get lost, basically? Of course, Lydia's hearing this as she's working with the girls, and she says, must be 1230, why don't you guys beat it? Of course, she adds, you heard what Dad said. Of course, Marsh is like, wait, what? What exactly did your dad say? So he's like, what, every day at 12.30 we gotta walk? I don't think so. And Amber gets up like, oh, I know so. And he's like, who asked you, blubber butt? Like, God, enough with the fat shaming. Enough. But Elvin gets up like, you want me to beat your ass, kid? So Stu jumps in and says, hey, 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 relax, relax, calm, calm down. It's okay. Like, this isn't working out clearly, us working together. Someone's gotta be the boss. And of course... Lydia's like, yeah, let me guess. That somebody's you? I don't think so. So, Stu devises a plan. Like, all right, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. Us guys, we're going to create a list of all the things we want. Our little want list, wish list. You girls got to get everything, and I mean everything on that list. You do that, you're bossing us around for the rest of the summer. And I'm like, all right, deal. I love... Amber, what she says after Marsh calls her blubber, but he's like, she says, well, I can go on a diet, but y'all always be ugly. Like, hell's yes, girl. Yes. Of course, Albany gets up and says, I'm going to kick your pygmy butt, basically your white, your white butt. You know Lydia is not going to be bossed around by her little brother. Oh, hell no. Why do I get a Bart and Lisa Simpson vibe from these two? <laughs> oh my goodness. So Stu mentions, let's go double or nothing on a dare. Winner runs a show here. Loser has to follow orders. And Chet's like, uh, Stu, I don't like that idea. So Lydia's like, all right, so if us girls win, you guys have to be our slaves. And I'm like, uh, uh X nay on that word. You are friends with two African-American girls. Come on now. You could have used a better term. Like, like, I don't know, lackey or I don't know. And of course, March is like, Stu, no, I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm not about it. <laughs> So these kids are clearly, Stu's like, and his guys are like, what, 10, 11 years old? They haven't hit that I'm into girls phase yet. They're not, they didn't hit that puberty mark yet. So, no, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to be no slaves, no girls. <laughs> oh, here we go. They got a, they got a loot for uh, Lip Nikki's junkyard here. Ugh, I would not even be touching anything on that property because you're going to get tetanus. You're going to get hepatitis something who knows who knows you get any kind of disease at that junkyard Ugh. i mean there's rats you saw that guy picked up a dead rat there are rats there that is diseased diseased how are those kids that are living in that junkyard not like crawling around with like worms or whatever Ugh. Ugh. so some of the stuff on this list is a bit much a stove a waiting pool 
And a barca lounger that is probably covered in cat hair and dog piss. Ugh. All those kids around there, those Lipnickies, how are they not, like, standing guard, like, taking shifts and everything like that at this junkyard? Half the time it looks like there's nobody here during the day. I gotta say, with the wardrobe these kids are wearing, I get that everyone is, quote-unquote, dirt poor in this Juliet, Mississippi place. Everyone's clothes are, like, ripped, hanging off their bodies, very dirty and stained. I get it. They don't have a lot of money. I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I, I'm guessing it's just their wardrobe is just to symbolize not only do they not have enough money, their clothes are kind of shabby. Uh, maybe that's why Lydia's wearing cowboy boots. So, while they're walking around, Lydia finds a lot of the stuff from her old house they looted once it was, you know, demolished. There's a, a mantelpiece, which looks like it's seen better days. Like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. I feel like, well, I'm taking my mantelpiece back, Lip Nickies, since this is not yours. You just rooted through the rubble of my old house. Thank you very much. So basically they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Ugh. I don't like the, the Lipnicky. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. So yeah, Lydia's pissed. It's like, he doesn't even own this property, stupid squatter. And then he steals our stuff on top of it. Okay, well, we have one Lipnicky that we have not met. We're just meeting him for the first time. Sweetheart of a boy, Billy Lipnicky. Who's just been hanging. He was the one who had the hands over the ears when his dad was shooting off the shotgun killing rats. So the kid runs off screaming his head off, calling him for his older siblings. Finally the girls catch up to him, put a hand over his mouth to shut him up, and they kind of make a bargain with him. What is in this kid's hair? Fruit Loops? Fruity Pebbles? Mixed with dirt? And, I mean, his, this boy's face is covered in dirt. Covered in it. I'm not trying to shame the Lip Nickies. I mean, I don't like them. Billy's cool. I mean, he's a, he's going to help them out and everything. But the other ones can, like, jump off that cliff on that quarry. I don't give a shit about them. But this poor kid. So, basically, Lydia's going to shut Billy up with money. Like, hey, Elvedine, you got money on you? Remember? Elvedine's like, well, I just got ten cents. Like, all right, thank you. She takes it. Billy. Do you promise to keep your mouth sh shut about us coming here? Because we're going to make frequent trips here, by the way. We're going to be coming back. I will give you ten cents every single time we come here. Alright? Every time. He looks at the girls both, like, looks at Lydia, looks at Elvedine. Hmm. Takes it. Holds it. The dime. And it's like, okay. Alright, here we go with the guys. We're, we cut back a lot to between Stu and the guys and Lydia and the girls. So this little contraption here is like it's basically like a wheelbarrow, and this they're going down a hill made of concrete. So it's like there's no Nintendo, there's no internet, there's no video games, nothing, nothing. These boys are making their own entertainment. Oh, this is what the boy, uh, um, one of them asked, like, hey, do you think the girls will get anything on that list? So he's like, oh, hell no. They're probably at Elvedine's having a backbend contest or something stupid like that. 
<laughs> a backbend contest? <laughs> well, this is 1970, so breakdancing hadn't happened yet, so. This metal wheel, the, the wheel on this thing is like a car tire. It's huge. And it's got a seat on it, so that's where Chet is sitting and basically steering. You got Marsh and Stu sitting in this, the the barrel part, which is really, really deep. I mean, you just barely see the top of Stu's head. And this would make me nervous. Like, you're going down a concrete hill. You don't know what's at the bottom of that hill. But boy, oh boy, are they going to find out. So they end up going down the concrete hill, and they land in some brownish water, and they're like, oh, that was so fun, they splash brown water at each other, like, ugh. But as they start walking around to get out, they start smelling something really fucking rank and nasty. Well, here we go, here are the Lipnickies. Oh, cripes. It looks like, I don't know, like, wet cement mixed with fungus or something and the boys are kind of walking around it to get out and they're like oh you could one of them's like you could die of fumigation down here and then marsh is like hold on a cesspool one of them is like oh man it's poison ivy oh cripes so it's a mixture of all of this stuff i guess i love what marsh says here it's poison ivy one time through here and we'd be itching till our balls Oh my god! You probably would be. You probably would be. I'm sure there's an ointment made for... I'm sure in 1970 there had to have been a home remedy or ointment or something to that regard for poison ivy. There had to... Calamine lotion? Does that take care of poison ivy? I don't know. Well, they got their watchdog up there, the Liv Nickies do, uh, Lester Bucket or whatever the hell his name is. I told you they were there. Fuck you, Lester. Go hump a tree or something, you perv. Chet's like, oh no, the Lipnickies are coming. Like, buddy, they are there. They are, like, up on that hill. So I don't know how you're getting out of that situation. But then Stu devises a plan because there's, like, a wooden plank there. And he's thinking, hey, let's kind of divert this so when that cart comes down, it's going to veer to, like, the left or the right. And they're going to land right in that damn cesspool. And the other guys are like, are you sure? And she's like, well, they can't see from up there, so it'll be fine. They're, they're going to be totally surprised. You hear the flies buzzing. This is, like, cesspool, green ooze, goo. I'm surprised they're aren't leeches in that thing. So Stu and the guys push the cart back up there. Lip Nicky's kind of take it over. Like, hey, we're taking this. You can't say anything about it. Of course, Stu's playing off like, oh, I wouldn't go down there. It's awful scary. And of course, the Lip Nicky's like, hey, you ain't us, are you? So don't worry about it. Like, shut up. Well, whatever. You know, hey, see ya. <laughs> So yeah, pretty much, uh, the cart veers off, they get thrown in the cesspool, and they're like, oh my god, it stinks like shit down here, oh, it smells like a butt. And of course, Stu and the guys are all laughing their ass, it's like, ha 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 ha, yeah, of course, Arliss or Leo, whoever the hell it is, is like, oh, kick your ass, like, yeah, 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 take a bath first, that way we don't smell ya ahead of time. 
Guys are all laughing, congratulating each other. They get back. Yep, the girls got all the stuff on the list. And Amber, Lydia, and Elvedine are all hanging out in that bar lounge going, Hey, boys, we got the stove, the waiting pool, and, of course, the bar lounger. Start building slaves. <laughs> and, of course, Stu's two friends, Marsh and Shatter, are like, Oh, fuck this, we're out. But before, uh, basically Chet and Marsh take off, like, Marsh comes up with a, hey, I got it, we'll build it out of their stuff and kick them out. And Stu's like, we can't do that, we made a deal. But basically Marsh's like, hey, we're not doing anything you say. And Lydia's pissed, like, hey, we had a deal, we got all this shit that you had on your little wish list. And, yep, yeah, Stu's like, seriously, guys, you're seriously bailing? I mean, they got great stuff. Like, it's okay, really. Um, <laughs> but Marshall's like, hey, does Howdy Doody have wooden balls? <laughs> what is with this kid and balls? So Lydia calls them, you know, welchers, basically. <sighs> so it's nighttime. Steven gets home. Of course, his car is all sputtering and puttering. Noisy-ass bitch neighbor is on like, Hey, you think you can make any more name noise with that damn car of yours? And <clears throat> Stephen's like, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. whatever your name is. And then he makes a perverted joke like, Hey, stop looking through my nightgown trying to see my nipples. Like, he just looks like, What? Ew. Uh. <laughs> He's like, I mean, the look on his face is absolutely like, I wasn't doing that. Well, her name is Miss Higgins. Miss Higgins, you can fuck off. Shut up. I don't like you, lady. All you do is bitch and complain. I'd be like, you wish, lady. You wish. <laughs> the look on his face after she's like, sure, sure, look through my dress and see my nipples. And it's it's evening time, so it's kind of dark, so you can't really see his expression, but you, you know what it is. So Lois gets home from work. Ask Steven how his day was, and he says, well, they let me go from that job today. So the janitor did that job he just got, like, the other day. They dropped him like a bad habit. Are you shitting me? It's summertime. Kids aren't in school. Well, Lydia is, but, uh, even still, it's like, are you, oh, my God. I would be pissed. And I don't even think, I think he was drafted in the war. He didn't get to choose whether he got to go or not. He had to go. So he'd only been there a week, and they dropped his ass. Somehow they found out about the fact that he'd been in a state hospital. And Lois was like, well, did you tell them that you went there to that hospital voluntarily for your nightmares? I don't think that would have made a difference. So he basically says that they told him it was nothing personal. The law says you can't work for the city or the state within the vicinity of children if you spend time in a mental hospital or a corrective institution. He's not a child molester. He's just a guy who was in Vietnam who's having PTSD. They're treating him like he's a pervert, and he's not. And he didn't kill anybody. He's not an axe murderer. And this is going on in 1970. And even Lois is like, it's because of the government that you went to that place to begin with. And now they're turning you down for work like you're some kind of criminal. Guys, I have the subtitles on. So that helps. Um, but yeah, it's like, what the hell? It's kind of hard to make a living when every time you go for a job less than a week, you get thrown out because they 
do a background check. What happened that they would have thought to check on that? So Lois is like, don't worry, we still have my jobs, I got my two jobs, we can get food stamps. And Stephen right away puts a stop to like, no, 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 I'm not living off the government. And of course, Stephen kind of scoffs at it, like, food stamps, God bless America. They give you a handout before they give you a job. <sighs> so, of course, he is really hurting by this. It's like, no, he doesn't want a damn handout. He wants a job so he can support his family. And, of course, he's like, can you please not tell the kids just yet? I don't want them to know that I lost another job. So he does say, you know, she says, you know, the kids will find out eventually. He's like, I know, but I want to tell them in my own way. Just, I want to get, you know, basically try to find something else in, before, you know, I tell them. And he says, I just don't want them getting the idea that the world's against us. And... Honestly, your heart goes out to this man because he's just serving his country. He's dealing with the ramifications and the aftermath of what, you know, happens when you come home from from that. And now he's struggling to find a job. He just wants to support his family. He doesn't want his wife to work in two dang jobs if she doesn't have to. One, maybe. Or maybe just he wants to work so his wife doesn't have to work. You know, or, or, or however. He's just, your heart goes out to him because... He's just doing his damn best, man. He's doing his damn best to try to find work. If you think about I mean, with Lois working two jobs, those kids are just about raising themselves. So Stephen kind of quotes his father saying that nothing you ever do in this lifetime is going to make a difference. And Stephen says, you know, out of all the things anyone's ever said to me, that's the one that I held on to. And meanwhile, you know, I mean, Stephen's sitting on the edge of the bed. He's hunched over. He's just, he's broken. This this man is broken. And you see Lois being a good wife. She's rubbing his shoulders. She's trying to support him. Just, honey, I'm listening. Just get it out. Just, it's it, huh, it just, seeing this as an adult now versus when I first saw it as a, as a kid, I probably didn't really understand or really relate to what the kid's parents are going to going through because I've seen it through, you know, a kid's eyes. I was there, you know, for the kids and stuff like that. But as an adult, seeing the struggles of this couple and what they're going, what he's going through, it just breaks my heart. So it turns out Stephen, I guess, did join up because they were drafting anyway. Maybe he thought he, even if he didn't just join up, they were probably going to call his number anyway. Now he, he's feeling guilt about what happened with his friend Dodge. Like, did I let my best friend die because I didn't have enough guts to stand up? Like, that's... Gosh, this is really killing him. You know, the PTSD, the guilt that he couldn't save his friend. And he tells Lois, it's like, well, I don't want our kids growing up thinking they're powerless because of me. It's like, they're not going to think that, man. And he says, like, everything we do in this world has a consequence. Our children still believe in miracles. They still believe anything's possible. And he says to Lois, he says, as long as they believe like that, they're gonna be something. It's like, he wants more for his kids than what he has. Which isn't that in a way parents, with their kids, they want their kids to maybe have what they didn't have growing up? Like, I want my, because, you know, if you didn't have the best childhood or whatever, or you want to instill in them that as long as they believe in things and they have hope that they're going to be something. 
thing. And he says they're going to make a difference in this world. And that's why he, he's against the whole fighting thing. It's like, there are other ways to solve a problem. Fighting is the last, like, that shouldn't even be, that shouldn't even be up there. That should be, like, I, I don't know. I've never gotten into a fight. I've never been in a fight. I never started a fight. None of that. I never did that. So I think in a way, Steven's like, his future, his kids are, the future, you know, as long as he pours these, you know, this wisdom and everything into his kids, and, and just, those kids are gonna be, that's the future, if those kids grow up and they do right and all that good stuff. So it looks like, uh, there's, uh, some work that needs to be done as we go to town, we hear Summertime by Janis Joplin. Before that, we heard Think by Aretha Franklin. Steven is kind of waiting with a bunch of other guys. They're also looking for work. As a, a truck comes up. Oh. So Steven's by himself. He sees a little Nicky's. It's raining out. And he's got this rope that's got like a crane on it or something. I'm not sure what he's trying to do. Whether that's how he got down. From there, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm guessing that's what this rope is, because he's trying to get, like, a huge basket full of stuff to take up to the top level of the fort that they're building. And, of course, his scrawny-ass self, he can't do it. Because he's got the rope, like, slung over a tree, and he's, like, trying to, like, pull the basket up, which the basket probably weighs more than he does. Like, you're not getting that up there. So the girls are taking a break... And they got a little, uh, shanty shade thing going on. And they're just watching Stu, like, busting his butt. He's determined to get that basket of stuff up there. So granted, yes, even though Stu is supposed to be their little, uh, grunt worker here, Lydia sees him struggling. Hey, Albany and Amber, let's give him a hand. And, of course, Amber's like, hey, it's so hot out here, I can't work, it's too hot to work today, I might have me a stroke. So, of course we get Lydia, Stu, and Elvedine all trying to get this basket of, is it the Barca Lounge? Guys, you are not getting that damn thing up in that fucking tree, I'm telling you now, you are not getting that up in that tree. <laughs> not with the three of you. But Amber's like, alright, alright, let me... So one was like, we can't lift this. And uh, Stu's probably like, come on, we almost got it. You don't have anything. It's barely even off the ground, guys. It's not. Got to get up there by the three. And they're just sitting there laughing at them. Like, this is so hilarious. If a camcorder were invented, I would be recording this. So Chet and Mars show up, and they're like, hey, uh, yeah, let's see what's going on with this fort. Oh, man, he wants to build that fort so bad. He is... Just so desperate. So Amber finally is like, alright, you guys want that up there, then why didn't you ask me? Stu, of course, gets an ad. He's like, put that thing up there! And she's like, it's, have you not heard the word of please? And of course, Stu gets a smile on. He's like, please! Like, really fake polite. Like, alright, thank you, thank you. Get your ass out of the way, lightweight. She, like, shoves and pushes him. Like, get out of my way, lightweight! <laughs> so Amber goes up the the ladder here. She ties a rope around her waist. She's just gonna jump off this branch, which 
She doesn't break any bones. She doesn't break her legs. Nothing. But it gets the job done. She gets that giant basket with a barca lounger and some sofa cushions up there. So Marsh and Chad are just watching this on their bikes. Marsh is like, all right, let's get out of here. Chad's like, oh, hold up. I want to see how this plays out. As he uh, watches uh, Amber climb to that branch. All right, so now we're getting back to this house that we saw earlier. And Steven this time has Stu with him. Like, hey, I want you to check this out with me. Stu, of course, is like, this house looks like utter garbage. <laughs> Steven's like, well, no one's interested on account of she's so close to the train tracks. Really? That's the reason they're given for not being into this house? Granted, if you think about it, how much often do you still, I mean, yeah, you probably still see trains a lot going on tracks, but down here, um, there was, uh, train tracks across just up the road from us, but it's like, they're not really anymore. There's like a set of tracks that go one way, but they've cleared off the other side where it's like nothing can get through. So it's like, how often are trains still used to transport? Probably not nearly as much as it was like, say, 10, 20 years ago, I'm guessing. But the house looks dilapidated. That roof looks rotten to the core. There's broken, um, what are those things? The things on the side of the, you know, windows, window shutters or something. There's a word for it. I can't think of it. I love how Steven refers to the house as a she. The door is hanging off its hinges. But, I mean, with a little updating, that house could look damn good. Paint, you know, fixer up. That ends, that, oh, that screen porch would be great for, like, summers, like, sleeping, you know, set up a bed out there. You got your screens. Maybe get a mosquito net or something like that, what have you, to keep the mosquitoes away in the summertime. That would be nice sleeping out there. I wouldn't do it myself, but. <laughs> of course, Stu is like, Dad, nobody wants her because she's a wreck, all right? I love Steven. He's like, well, how dare you? So, of course, Stu is, like, painting out everything that's wrong. Paint's chipping off the walls, cracked windows. Buddy, you ain't even been in that damn house. How do you know paint's chipping off the walls? What, you referring to the siding? The vine, the, the wooden, the siding? Of course, seems like lipstick and rouge. That's all it is. That's all that is. Lipstick and rouge. What does that mean? He says, this here's a fine old girl. You just gotta look a little deeper. I keep referring to this house like a lady. So this isn't the first time that Steven has actually examined this house, but he's like, she's got good pipes, sound foundation. She's going to keep us cool in the summer and warm in the wind in the winter. And wait, wait, did he just say warm in the winter? Okay, I want to find out how cold does it get in Mississippi in like January. I want to find that out. So basically it says January, it gets like 56 and stuff like that, so... 56, January, maybe February is going to be around 60. You got March is going to be just under 70 and so on and so forth, which isn't terrible. But then again, maybe, I mean, 70, I mean, like 56 to us is like light jacket weather, possibly. Maybe a, a Columbia fleece jacket or something like that. But maybe, maybe for Mississippi, 56 is like, like 30 to what? you know, here in Michigan, I'm guessing. Clean water to drink. There's a little spigot out there, and he pours it out. The water just, like, gushes. I was like, that springs tears to my eyes. 
And Stephen is just like, listen, that water pressure, like, this thing is pumping out water, like, major, like, wow, wow, wow. Of course, Stu is not supportive of this. Like, Dad, you've gone stark raving mad. Like, come on. And Stephen's like, shh, shh, hear that? Hear that? It's the birds. Not crying babies. Birds. Look at the peace and quiet. There's, like, not another house around there for probably, like, five miles. You, it would be so nice. You wouldn't have crying babies at, like, 3 a.m. You don't have houses, like, right up on top of you. It, I mean, heck. Heck yeah. Beautiful love. Beautiful. So I like as they go into the, the, is it a three season porch or a four season? It's an enclosed porch, right? And as he's going and Stephen's like, she's speaking to me. And of course, she's like, yeah, what's she saying? And Stephen's like, you can buy me. And of course, I'm sure Stu's like, yeah, with what money, dad? So they're kind of peeking in the windows and, uh, Stephen goes to one of the windows, kind of points and like, hey, I figured that there could be your room, so that way you get your own room. So odds are probably he and Lydia probably are sharing a room. That could be, like, maybe a, a two-bedroom place that they're staying in right now that they probably do have to share a room, which sucks. I mean, they're both, like, te uh, you know, Stu's a preteen and she's a teenager. The kids are not going to want to have their to share the same room forever. Of course, she's like, this is the biggest room I've ever seen. I'd be like, our whole house could fit into this one room. It's so big. So Stephen says, upstairs there's a vanity in the master suite. Now, I don't think we get to go into the house, but the door is just unlocked for like, anyone to just peruse and look around. Oh, um, of course, Stu's like, well, how do you know that there's a vanity in the master suite? And Stephen's like, well, because last time I was here, I climbed up a tree and snuck a peek. He's obsessed. He, 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 this is his house. Like, this house has got our name on it. I can imagine, like, yeah, Lois definitely would want her own bathroom. But she doesn't have to share with her husband and kids. Steven's like, I'm going to build her a French potty in here. Oh, you mean like a bidet? <laughs> You're going to build a bidet. Oh, my goodness gracious sake. Oh, he doesn't even mention that. You know, one of those bidets. Do you know what a bidet is? <laughs> Yeah, isn't it? A bidet is something to wash, like, your front, basically, right? Like, eh, I mean, if you're into it, great, but how many houses today would even, unless you want to have one built, a house is not going to come with a bidet. But even, you know, he's like, I'm going to build one of those bidets. Like, I bet you will. So, Steven's inside and Stu's outside, and he's looking at the swinging, uh, porch swing, that says Walter, it says Walter Crowley home, and it says 12-14-63, so that's only like seven years ago, if this is 19, June 1970, so this was like six and a half years ago that this Walter Crowley made this his home. Dang. Of course, Sue's bent down looking at this name carved into the back of this porch wing, and he says, next owner is none other than, and Stephen kind of pops his head out the front door and says, us. Like, hmm. So, Stephen kind of tells Stu, like, hey, look, it's going to take a good while before I can get enough money together to buy this place. I really would appreciate it if you kept this basically on the down low, on, you know, from your mom and sister. I don't want them to know about it yet. Don't want to get anyone's hopes up, so... 
So Steve says, don't worry, I won't tell a soul. And of course he has his dad like, Dad, are we just pretending we're going to buy this place? Like right now it just seems like this big giant fantasy that you want to come true. But, you know, sometimes it's like when you plan in your head about something that you really, you, you want to do. Like you're planning, like you're planning out your future. Like one day I'm going to live in a house and it's going to have a big built-in library. It's going to have a fireplace. It's going to be, you know, like your dream home. And it's like, you're kind of pretending about all the things you want to do, but you know it may come true. It's something you, you know, may or may not come true. But we've all been there. We've all kind of dreamt up what we want our dream house to be. Or some, and you hopefully get something that comes as close to it as humanly possible. So Steven tells him, like, we're hoping, son. So long as we got hope, there's always a chance. That's true. Hope, determination... You know, that's the, that's the goal. That's the end goal right there. That's the end game. It's going to be, you know, we're going to we're gonna get this house. Oh, I just love these moments between, you know, Kevin Costner and Elijah Wood. They are amazing together. And even Lexi Randall with Kevin Costner and Mayor Winningham. It's like they are all so great and amazing in their roles. It's just you love this family. You want to root for this family that good things are going to happen for them. So, Steven, you know, he's looking for work, any work, and he ends up picking the potatoes and whatnot with a bunch of people. We got people that are, like, they're not prison guards, but they're just people that are overseeing the fields, making sure the work's getting done and all that stuff. And it's just, like, he's taking, he's taking whatever the heck he can give that is not going to give him a background check, that is not going to look into his past. Like, basically, your field workers, I don't want to know about your past work history... All I want to know is if you can pick up potatoes. So, Stephen is, you know, picking potatoes with this one guy. And he says, hey, that man over there I've been talking to says you know something about a mining job. And the guy basically tells Stephen, go to hell. And Stephen's like, uh, excuse me? Did I say something wrong? So everyone's busting this dude's chops about his car being like a piece of, you know, junk and all that stuff. Oh, he's like, because a guy who we learn his name is Mo is looking at this older gentleman, this elderly man who's just sitting on an upturned crate, just kind of laughing at him. And yeah, he's like thinking, oh, you guys are putting me on. You're making fun of my car. Well, because the guy gets frustrated and says, hey, I want y'all to stop making fun of my car. So basically he's telling Stephen, first chance I get at a job and my car blows up. Like, oh, fuck. So Steven's like, yeah, I'm tired of people making fun of my car too, but it runs. And Mo's like, oh, it runs, huh? And Steven's like, well, yeah, I mean, when I got money to put gas in her, she does. I like this. Steven can fit in with just about anybody. And he's like, hey, if you got a line on a good job, I got a card. And it's cool. You know, they work out a system, which is awesome. So Steven invites him over for dinner. You know, we can discuss it. So it's dinner time at the Simmons house. Lydia is complaining, like, oh, how come all we ever eat is, ma uh, is potatoes anymore? We eat mashed potatoes, fried potatoes, baked potatoes. Oh, that's nice. You know, uh, Amber and Albedine are there, too, and Stephen comes in with Mo. All right, so yeah, you know, Stephen says that he and Mo got hired on as minors. All right. M-I-N-O-R-S. I'm sorry, M-I-N-E-R, minor, like in a mine. 
So, I guess he, he, he Stephen's got to show up tomorrow, if not the foreman gives the job to somebody else. And I'm guessing Stephen needs to get a card, which is, what, like a union card or something, which is going to cost $50? Good golly. Okay, $50 for a union card. Gotcha. So, of course, um, the agreement that he and Mo, Stephen and Moe settled on was that if Stephen gets that union card, Moe's going to ride to work with him every day and pay him a dollar for gas. So, of course, Stephen goes into his room, um, Lois follows him, he says, this job pays ten times what I'm making now, which clearly ten times is a shit ton of money. And, of course, Lois is like, why do you think that is? Clearly this job is dangerous, they're probably paying a lot of money because, you, know, you know, people probably die doing this kind of work, working in a mine. So Stephen's got $17, Stu's got $5 that he can ship in, and Lois comes in and says, I got 800 Coke bottles you can have. Holy moo. And she says that should give about $35, $40 at least. Let me do the math on that. So that pretty much equals to $0.05 cents a can, because she says that should give about $35, $40. Oh my god! You know, imagine, uh, well back in the day, in the 70s, you didn't have machines to just toss your cans into. They had to count them out. Oh my good golly. And I remember back in the day, when I would bring cans in, to the grocery store and they would have to count them. I mean, you couldn't bring like a garbage bag full, clearly. You probably brought like a small sack worth or like a, a brown grocery bag worth. So of course Lydia is like, oh mom, I thought you were saving that for, uh, and Lois is like, a special occasion? That is exactly what this is. And she says, well your daddy just landed the best job of his life and congratulates Stephen and Mo for, you know, getting the job. So it really seems like Lois is trying her best to put on a brave face. Of course, you know, they gotta get there before that place closes. And he says it's nearly 50 miles, no, that's Stu, right? It's nearly 50 miles to that, mar it's a marble mine? And the car's name is Flossie? Uh, interesting. <laughs> um, so, Lydia has to shoot out her mouth, off her mouth, which, of course... This is after Steven's left. I want to play this clip because her mom puts her in her fucking place, which she should. Lady Summers, what is the matter with you? It's you. You don't got good shoes. You hardly ever eat anything. You work all the time. This money was going to be a new chance for you. Why are you always giving your chances away? to make this world a better place for us. Yes, he struggles. Yes, he has had dirt kicked in his face. All the more reason he needs our help. Now, you don't want to help him, that's okay. You gotta follow the instincts. But I will not listen to you knocking. He's part of me.
really, really liked what Lois said to Lydia here. It really, speaking the truth, it's like you can't, you know, your dad's doing everything he can, bending over backwards to create a, you know, a life for us here, and he's doing the best that he can. And Lois says, you know, he's a part of me. I mean, you're knocking him down, you're knocking down me, and you're knocking down yourself. So that definitely gets Lydia to thinking. You know, I get it, you know, she sees her dad as just this guy who keeps looking for work and losing work and everything like that. I mean, does she... she I mean, Stu knows... And, and and Lois knows, but does Lydia know he's losing those jobs on account of, you know, him having issues, you know, with, with the war and everything, with the PTS and all that stuff? I mean, maybe she doesn't. Maybe somebody needs to sit her down and tell her that. So, oh my gosh, this next scene. I'm playing this clip because it is so, so beautiful. This is a scene between Lydia and Stephen, and it's late at night, she had to go to the bathroom, because she was, she was sleeping, she woke, she had to go to the bathroom, or she dreamt she was going to the bathroom and woke up and it was real, so when I was young watching this, you know, I was like, you know, maybe 11, 12, what have you, I, I thought she like went to bed or something, because she said, I dreamt I had to pee and then I woke up and it was real, but... Steven's out on the porch kind of muttering to himself, so I don't know if maybe he could be praying. I'm not sure. But I want to play this clip because it's so beautiful. you believe anything you can't see? No. So do you think I have a guardian angel? <laughs> Lydia, I bet you got a dozen of them. Look who, for example. I bet your grandfather's watching over you. Well, I thought you said he was an alcoholic. Lydia, it's, well, it's two o'clock in the morning. Dad, listen. When you get old and die, you better find whoever's got my case and take over the job yourself. <laughs> I tell you what, when the Lord calls me home, I just ask him about that. Okay? Right now, both ought to be getting the sack on. So, Lydia finds out that the reason that Stephen's been <clears throat> losing jobs is because of the war and. You know, those dreams that he's been having and everything like that. And she's worried that he's going to go away again. You know, disappear for months at a time and everything. 
And she's like, are you planning to leave again? And he says, I'm not going anywhere that you can't come with. So Stephen's holding this pen. And it's one of those pens that's got, like, a floating object in it. And it actually happens to be an angel. And this is where it kind of is a foreshadowing in a spoiler way, of what's to happen in the movie. She asks, well, do you believe in angels? And he's like, yeah. And she says, well, do you think I have a guardian angel, you know, watching over me? And he's like, honey, I think you have a dozen guardian angels watching over you. And she's like, well, who do do you think's watching over me? And he says, well, your grandfather for one. And she kind of looks at him sideways like, I thought you said he was an alcoholic. And he's like, honey, honey, it's two in the morning. We really need to be going to bed here. And Lydia's like, dad, listen, when you get old and die, you better find out whoever's got that job and take over for him. Oh, and it just, my heart, my heart so much. Mm, now we got to go to the damn lip nickies. Oy vey. They're all... The older two guys are comparing scars or cuts on their arms or whatever. Billy is hiding Lydia and Amber and Elvenine so that way they don't get caught by the Lipnickies. And, of course, Lydia gives him, you know, a dime. So here you go. Here's your dime. Thank you for hiding us. Okay, so Lydia's kind of saying, you know, this is something that she had no idea about. But Stu does because he Rides his bike up to that house, well, up to where the fence is, it says, there's a sign that says auction, and there's a, it says cotton pick and fair, there's going to be, um, a county auction, probably for some of those houses, you know, the foreclosed ones that they're auctioning off, so, you know, Stephen got out his nice white shirt, pressed it, ironed it, got out a tie so he could look presentable. That's how you do it, man. That's how you do it. You want to look, especially if you want to come by in a house, you dress, you dress real good. Even Jeremy, I mean, when he went to buy a car, he put on, you know, a button-up work shirt, and he wore, I think he even, yeah, he wore a tie to go, he's like, hey, does this look like someone who would let me buy a car? I'm like, Jeremy, you have nothing to worry about. It's fine. But yeah, he wanted to look respectable. I get it, you know, what's that saying? Dress to impress? Yeah. So, yeah, we see a line of cars getting into this auction. Steven's dealing with his car stalling again. Who's behind him, who you think? The damn Lip lip Nickies. You think you Lip Nickies are getting a house? Hell no! Why are you even there? They're there to just cause trouble, would be my guess. This guy is hassling Steven... Heckling him. He's like, come on, what? Can't you drive? Get that piece of junk off the road. And it becomes to the point where whatever Father Lip Nicky or whatever the heck. I don't know that man's first name. I don't care. He starts ramming Steven's car. So the song we got playing in the background is Summertime Blues. And I'm just seeing, yeah, what? They're picking this song. And so just, like, go around him. Just, you moron, go around, damn lip Nicky. So the 
the Lipnicki kids are egging him on, saying, hey, he's just doing it to spite you. That's why he cut you off. Did he? Did he really? These damn kids. Are you kidding me? This damn Lipnicki guy freaking plowed right into the back of his damn car. It's like, dude, and we got people that are watching this whole thing go on. It's like, dude, you could have caused him to hit the person in front of him, you asshole. Steven Stills like, what the hell? Dad, he's in a car. And Steven's like, son, what do you want me to do? Get in between it and stand between the bumper? Any person probably would have finally had enough and got out of their car and fucking dragged that Libnicky's got that guy's fucking ass out through his fucking window. That shit happened nowadays. That guy, that Libnicky, he's his ass is gonna be dead. Cause someone would have not put up with that shit and fucking killed him. Dude's getting fed up. He's like, hey, quit hitting our high, you stupid son of a bitch. And of course, Steven's like, son, son, don't don't talk like that. Of course, Father Libnicky comes up right alongside and said, what the hell do you say to me? You better teach your son some new, some manners or some stuff like that. And he's like, that's the way you teach your kids to talk back to adults? And of course, Steven's like, no, no, I apologize. No, my son just, he got a little freaked out. It's all, don't worry about it. It's fine. I mean, like, throw that in his face. Like, have you seen your damn kids? They ought to be taken away from your ass. And Stephen, you know, he, he doesn't want to fight or anything like that. He's just trying to keep the situation under control. Of course, Yuli uses this time to reveal that Stu tricked them into falling into the poison ivy. You can't prove that. You can't prove that. You cannot prove that. Of course, Eb is like, yeah, I got dung all over me because of him. So basically shit all over him. So Father Lipnicky gets, why am I calling him father? It's not like he's a preacher, pastor, whatever. De whatever. Lipnicky Sr. there gets out. He's like, hey, you throw my kid in the cesspool? And Stu's like, no. It's like, dude, you are starting shit. When people are trying to get their asses into this damn county fair. Now you're creating a damn spectacle. This ain't don't give a shit. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. This is a Oh, my God. The... Lipnicky gets out of his truck. Mind you, gets a tire iron like he's gonna whack Stu. Like, don't you fucking dare. So I better not catch you lying to me. Uh-uh. Stephen finally, he, he's heading off. It's like, excuse me, excuse me. What do you think you're doing here? There is a humongous crowd watching all this. Nobody is stepping in saying, sir, 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 you need to leave now. You are being removed from the county fair or whatever this is supposed to be. I mean, no, they, it's 1970. They didn't have security guards. They clearly don't have police officers. Nothing like that at this place. So Stephen gets out of his car like, hey, sir, can we please just let this go? It seems like, hey, it seems like our kids are going li to live. It's going to be all right. This guy is a drunken fucking piece of shit. Even the people in the car in front of them have all stopped and looked. Like, come on, people. 
You can at least jump in, jump in there. This guy is drunk. He's swinging around with a tire iron. Or a, yeah, is that, yeah, that's what that is, right? It takes off the love nuts. Because Lip Nicky's all like, hey, I'll fight you. You looking for a fight? I'll fight you right now. And seems like, no, no, no. I don't believe in fighting. I'm like, dude, you're picking a fight with a veteran. He will rip you to shreds. This man served his country. What the hell have you done? Nothing. So, yeah, Lip Nicky just starts insulting Steven. Like, yeah, I bet you don't fight, you yellow-livered whatever turkey. And his kids are all cheering him on, like, yeah, way to go, dude. And meanwhile, Stu is just watching this, like... I see some lady watching this and just shaking her head, like, what a disgrace, that disgusting man. Stu finally lets it, he's like, well, at least you don't smell like a drunken skunk. And Lipnicky goes over, like, I beat your ass, and starts pulling Stu out the damn car window. And Steven's like, oh, no, you just didn't. I will fucking kill you. I'm going to play this clip because, oh my gosh, Steven just, he, 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 he's held it in as long as he could, but you put, uh, you put a hand on my kid, I will fucking kill you. So I am going to play this because, whoa, applaud, applaud. I know he doesn't believe in fighting. I know that this is really going to tear him up inside, but it's like, yeah, you don't let someone come after your kid and put their hands on your kid. No way. Oh, now they're breaking out the the crowd. <laughs> so, holy moly moo. Whoa. Oh, man. But what Nikki had it coming? It's like, Stephen even said, I don't mind you hitting my car. I don't mind you insulting me. But you put a hand on my child and you will push a button on me and I'll fucking lose control and kill you. Which, hell, he ain't kidding. He's got that guy in a choke. It's like, his hand is right around his windpipe. Like, I could fucking crush your damn throat in my hand and you would be dead. So he makes Lip Nikki apologize to Stu. Steven says, Stu, apologize to Mr. Lip Nikki. And then finally you hear somebody out there saying, all right, it's over. Break it. Just, just. They're telling the crowd to basically get on with your lives and disperse. It's like, where the hell have you been the whole time? Really? All right, now we're coming back to the girls who, they keep making raids on the Lip Nicky's property and stuff and everything. Of course, you know, eventually they will get caught. 
by who else but Lester Luckett, the Lipnicky's guard dog, or watchdog, or whatever you want to call this kid. So, basically, Lydia's in a bind here. Lester's like, hey, I don't believe that you got permission to be on their property. You can say whatever you want to say because you know I'm not going to believe you and I'm going to be telling you. Lydia's like, all right, you got stuck in summer school, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, so. She's like, all right, you keep your fucking mouth shut. I will do all your homework. And he's like, all right, the first time I get less than a B, I'm telling. So he's, he, he'll settle for a B, but no less than a B. It's like, basically, I got your ass. All right, now we're cutting back to the auction here. And you see a lot of black and white photos of different homes that are up for, uh, for foreclosure. So it looks like the house that Stephen wants, the one that he and Sue look at, is actually up. For, it's house number seven. I don't see that it says how much it is. But a guy actually does come up to him. And there's a box that says no minimum bid. This guy kind of is a jerk in a way. He, he starts the, I'm guessing whether it's the bank, not the manager, but maybe a representative of the bank in these foreclosed homes. He says, you know, uh, the bank tries not to encourage the cheapskates, which, excuse me? This man is dressed to the nines, wearing a sh white shirt and a tie. Granted, I mean, the shirt doesn't look too bad, being that he was, you know, um, just in a fight. Oh, he says that they don't encourage cheapskates by suggesting an opening offer of 5000 Dude, do you think anybody or everybody in that room has $5,000 between them? Hell no! Hell no! So the guy kind of reveals some of these people have been writing us checks for, like, oh, say, a nickel. And the guy says, you know, it's really causing some problems around here. Well, then... Dude, you put up a sign that says, because it says no minimum bid, which Stephen does point out. It says no minimum bid, right? If you want to discourage people and say, sorry, nothing but $5,000 or more will be accepted, that box is going to stay as empty as a tomb. Well, Stephen does say, it's like, well, my check ain't for nowhere near $5,000. So he's hoping, like, you reckon I still have a chance? And the guy's like, well, I don't want to lie to you, mister. He's like, well, I'd like to say yeah, but I don't want to lie to you. And the guy even suggests, have you ever considered buying a mobile home? Like, um, come on, guy, come on. This guy just wants the American dream. There's nothing wrong with that. that. I'd be like, have you considered buying a mobile home, sir? And, yeah, Stephen's licking the envelope. So that way, and then he kisses it, hands it to Sue, like, hey, you want to kiss it for good luck? Sue kisses it, and it's, it's sweet. And he says, I really like the White House the best, which, the all the photos are black and white. They all look like White Houses. Just say, I like the, oh, the number seven there, that, that house with the, um, the crooked, um, window shingle or what, what is, what are those things called? I know they got a word for them. And they both put their hands on the envelope, Stephen and Sue, and they put it into the box. Like, oh, here we go, here we go. Oh, putting all their hopes and dreams into this envelope. So, 
Stephen and Stu wander out like, hey, won't we get your mom and sister some cotton candy? And then he finds, Stephen finds, like, a little upturned box and says, hey, won't you stay right here where I can see you? Because there's a lot of people there. And it's like, buddy, you should have stayed. He was, like, probably looking for his dad. But it's like, buddy, you should have stayed. Your dad was coming back, okay? He was coming back. So Stu gets, goes wandering off when he should just stay where he was because as he starts wandering off outside of the pavilion, the damn lip, the lip Nickies start surrounding him and beating him up. Luckily, Steven comes just in time to uh, chase the other kids off because heaven forbid, they're not going to take on an adult. That man just kicked their dad's ass. So apparently back in the 70s, People call, kids call each other punk. I remember that in an episode, I think it was like season one of the Wonder Years. Season one, episode two. But anyway, Ed's like, hey, punk, don't you know you can't buy no houses with food stamps? Like, who says they were? Oh, no, that, uh, that was Willard who said that. No, Eb says, no, Willard, his daddy has a job. Do you, you know, we saw him picking spuds out in a field or something. It's like. Dude, have you seen your dad? Because my dad just kicked his ass. I would have thrown that shit so far in their face. So, of course, Steven gets back. He's got the cotton candy. Mind you, it's on spools and not in, like, plastic bags like they have nowadays. And he's like, well, where's my son? I put him right here. Oh, I see a banner that says farm equipment and mobile homes. Man, you see a lot of assortment of guys, you know, see guys in overhaul, overalls, see cowboy hats, uh, straw hats, uh, trucker hats, all sorts of hats. So yeah, Steven sees Stu getting his ass kicked, and he runs out there. Again, we got a shit ton of people watching this go down, and not one of them, well, there, one's an old lady and one is just a, I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's like, even the guys, the guy could get in there and break that shit up. Why are you watching, you know, two 16-year-old boys take on an 11-year-old? Well, granted, it's one kid and there's like five kids that are beating on him. That is not a fair fight by any means. So apparently, sometimes say that Richard Nixon is on the radio. And Steven helps Stu up, and Stu is ready to get back in there and beat some ass. Like, you fucking bastard. Ugh, I hate you. I hate you. So Nixon's on the radio saying something about a series of operations against communist-occupied areas of Cambodia. I don't know what that means. Again, with a, a whole crap ton of people are like, Duh, let's watch this man take his son and walk away from a fight or something. Come on, come on. Go about your business. If you're not going to jump in there and help, get the hell out of the way. So Steven says, you know, I guess this is all my fault. If I can't control myself, how can I expect you to? We have the song Follow by Richie Havens playing. So Steve and Stu, Steven and Stu head back to the car. Of course, Eula's like, hey, trespasser, I know a, a house your daddy could afford. A couple, of course, couple Robin, a couple of Robins living in it now. Granted, I thought, what when I watched this on VHS, when I rented this movie, didn't have subtitles. Either they didn't exist or just didn't have them yet. Um, 
I thought she said a couple of robbers are living in it now. That's what I always thought, but now it's like, oh, okay. These kids got guts. I mean, seriously. But then again, I really gotta wonder with Steven's intentions. I know, you know, his intentions were, you know, with that cotton candy, he was gonna give them the cotton. You didn't have to give both of them cotton candy. Just give them the one. Well, actually, honestly, I wouldn't have given them any. It's like, they just beat up your damn kid. Now it looks like you're rewarding them. Because this isn't gonna change anything. And even Stu's looking at him like, Dad, what are you doing? So Stephen goes over there with the cotton candy, and right away, Eula and Eb both start to back away, even though Eb has a stick in his hand. Grant is like, yeah, an adult's coming to you, you're not going to talk shit to their face. Because they are, like, deeply terrified. Like, <laughs> Then again, they just saw this man kick their dad's ass, so they're probably freaked out by him. Those kids, honestly, I'm gonna go so far as to say, those kids are like feral kids. I mean, they look like they, they definitely don't know how to act in society. You know, running wild and this and that and whatnot. It's like, those kids, no, they don't know. They are feral children, I think. Well, that's my opinion anyway. So now, as we see Steven extending the cotton, one of the cotton candies out to Eula, we, fl we cut back to Stu's expression, and he is just, like, really floored. Like, Dad, what? in his mind, he's probably like, Dad, what are you doing? I mean, do you, do you really think that Stu is seeing this as his dad offering, you know, an act of kindness? Because he looks generally pissed off. And he's going to call his dad out on it when his dad gets back to the car. And it's just like, seriously, this changes nothing. Yes, it was an act of kindness, but literally this changes not a damn thing between. Those kids are still going to come after your kid. They're still going to beat him up. It doesn't change anything. And Stu's pissed off as hell. He's like, I hope you know them, the kids that just beat me up. And Steven's like, yes, son, I know who they are. He's like, well, then why did you give them Mom and Lydia's cotton candy? Steven's words are, because, son, they look like they haven't been get given nothing in a long time. It's like, that's not your problem, though. I get that he's extending, you know, he's being nice and everything, but that's not your problem. Those kids are not going to change. Being nice to them one time is not going to change their attitude towards life. Or your kid. You know, but watching this as like a 12-year-old a, a or 13-year-old or whatever. No, I wasn't 13 yet. Um, I could kind of see the message for what it was. Like, oh, it's a sweet gesture and everything. But now as an adult, I just see it very differently. So Stu takes his dad to the tree so he can kind of see the work that they're doing. He's really like, wow, you guys are really, it looks great, you know? He's not taking them up there into the tree, but this is where Stephen finally reveals the rest of the story when it comes to his friend Dodge and everything like that. So before Stephen gets into a story about, you know, Dodge and everything like that, 
He's like, hey, have you tried talking to the Libnickies? I'm like, Steven, I get that you don't want to fight, but look what these kids are doing to your son. They're no different than their drunk father who was going to beat your kid with a tire iron. You really think that talking, and even Sue is like, Dad, it's self-defense. Seriously. And Stu throws it back at his dad's face like, Dad, you went to war to fight for people you didn't even know. And Steven's like, yeah, I went there to help people. But in the end, I ended up killing more people than I saved. And Steven's like, I lost more friends than I made before or since. And he's saying how, you know, he lost his, his dignity. He lost his home. He about lost his family. Like, that war d ugh, just destroyed this man. Now he's left with nothing but crumbling pieces that he's trying to put back together the best way, that, the only way that he knows how. Of course, Stu tells him, like, Dad, none of that was your fault. You've done the right thing going to war. So, Steven's like, son, I think it's about time I finish telling you about those nightmares that I've been having. And Stu's like, Dad, come on. He's like, no, you need to hear this. No, just listen. Like, Stu, you really, you need to open up your ears and you need to really listen to what your dad has to say. So basically, what happens, Steven's friend Dodge gets injured, and he's like, hey, don't worry, I'm going to get us both out of here. There's a helicopter there, unfortunately, the aircraft is too heavy, they can only take one person. So basically, yeah, uh, the guy's like, look, we got to get out of here, we can only fit one of you, you have to make a decision. And Steven pulls a gun on this guy, the, well, this army guy in the helicopter. He's like, hey, you're taking us both. So basically what, yeah, and in the end, Steven ends up getting on the transport and is airlifted out of there. He leaves Dodge to die. I don't know, because he said there's an explosion. I don't know, honestly, if Dodge even would have made it out of there. I don't know. But this is the guilt that Steven has been wrestling with the whole time, that he was not able to save his friend. And that's where a lot of the nightmares are, probably reliving that moment and whether or not he makes the same decision in his, his dreams or not. I don't know. So, and Steven is getting choked up while he's telling this to Stu. He says, two days later... They uh, pinned a purple heart and a bronze star for Braver, and he probably feels like a fraud. He's like, no, I didn't save anyone. I didn't even get to save my best friend. I left him there. And Stu is like, why didn't you make them take him, Dad? Well, if your dad had had them take Stu, they could only fit one person on there, Stu. If your dad had them take Dodge instead of him, your dad wouldn't be standing there telling you that story. He would be dead. And Stephen's answer to why didn't you make him take him, dad, is fighting had consumed us and we'd all gone nuts. And he turns to face Stu and says, that's what my struggle's been about. You know, trying to forgive himself and pardon his country. Stu runs over his over to Steven and they hug and Steven's crying and he says I can't tell you never to fight Stu and Stu's like dad don't worry I'm not gonna fight I'm gonna work it out with the Lipnickies without fighting man this is hard to get through without crying 
uh, Stephen is crying and just saying, you want to know what I think? I think the only thing that keeps people truly safe and happy is love. And he takes Stu's head in his hands and Stephen looks right into his eyes and says, I think, I think that's where men get their courage. That's where countries get their strength. And that's where God grants her, that's where God grants us her miracles. And in the absence of love, Stuart, there is nothing. Nothing in this world worth fighting for. And this is where Stu's crying and says, I'll try to work it out with the Lipnickies, all right? And Steven's kind of patting, you know, Stu's back. Like, I know you will. I know you, I know you will, son. He's like, I love you. And Stu's like, I love you, Dad. All right, finally we get to the school thing, which, oh my god, am I going to rip this apart. We cut to a chalkboard, not a dry erase board, a black chalkboard. I remember this in school. Hated the sound of chalk on chalkboard. Ugh! <clears throat> right up there with that term nails on a chalkboard. What we see written is, why my life is like a bowl full of cherries. Is this even a real book? Because she's like, this is a book and we're going to read it and we're going to write our memoirs. Like, what is this garbage? Did you write that book? I hate this. You know, and the teacher is played by Christine Baranski. This was the first movie I saw with this woman and I just had a... Just based on her character alone, just made me not like her. And I, it's nothing against the actress, but she also plays, she's clearly racist, 100% racist. And she plays a racist in the movie Cruel Intentions. Now, I know she plays Leonard Hofstadter's mother in Big Bang Theory. I've seen, you know, episodes and stuff like that where she's not, too, too bad, but still, just, just this lady just knows how to play someone who's a stuck-up bitch. And a racist in this movie. But I'm gonna end this part one of the war movie review. I'm gonna end it here, and in the next, in part two, we're gonna get to this teacher. So, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and my review of the movie so far. If you're new to my podcast and just listening for the first time, this is how I do things. I pretty much go through the entire movie. That's just how I am. That's how I like to do things. I like to just commentate along with it, explain it, you know, talk about my memories of the first time I watched it, how I view it as an adult, stuff like that. So, yeah. All right. I'll be back with part two this weekend. All right, bye-bye, everyone.